Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Do people ask you the same questions all the time? Yes. <laughs> Are there things you don't want to talk about? Yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what you don't want to talk about? Oh my God, are you filming this? I knew a girl once. Her name was Karen Bell. <laughs> she put me in clothes and showed those boys a film. I mean, wherever I am, I kind of make it, I forage, and I make it, um, I don't know, my nest, I guess. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Efren Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And with today's episode, we bid a fond farewell to Tori's third album, Boys for Pele. Well, we started pre-production, uh... In January of last year, I got the harpsichord. That was really exciting. I was so bad at it in the beginning. You're like learning a new language. You have to have so much patience to to learn. And and I don't have that much patience. I'm terrible at patience because uh, I could always play since I was little. Just like for woman, I went to the Magdalene. Hi, David. Hi, Eve. How are you? I'm okay. I miss everything. I miss you. I miss our retreat. I miss Pele. I just, I don't know. How do you miss me? We've been recording so much lately. Doesn't matter. I feel like I've seen you more than I've seen myself. Can't get enough. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. We are at the end of the road. Well, we've been threatening that for a very long time. But now like it's a real. year, in fact, I know. <laughs> now it's real. Yeah. We just This is where the highway ends. You know in that movie Speed where the highway's going to end because the construction isn't done on the highway conveniently? Right. Yes. Yeah, that's us. Our bus is approaching 55. Yes, and we what can't are we gonna stop. Do? What are we going to do? Two girls, 55. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to jump over that break in the road and go right into Choir Girl. I think we have it in us. Yeah, I think we yeah. do. After this episode, we will be taking about a month off, but that's only for our regular listeners. We will continue to release tracks on our Drive All Night Plus feed and our Tour All Year feed. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you will not be taking a month off with us. But if you are not a Patreon subscriber, we'll be back in December for our From the Choir Girl Hotel Primer. Oh my God. We, Just the we, words freak me out. Have you been practicing how you're going to say From the Choir Girl Hotel no, at the beginning of each episode? No, but oh now God. I'm feeling insecure about it. Oh God, it. you're going to have From to practice. From the Choir Girl... No, well, I'm going to mess it up. Choir... No. Dr- dream Gwiles. Oh God. Dream Do you remember Motel? that? Do you remember... <laughs> At the Academy Awards when Nicole Kidman presented an Oscar to Dreamgirls and she said Dreamgirls. <laughs> no. Do you remember when John Travolta presented it to... Adele Nazim. Adele Nazim, yes, exactly. <laughs> God, how humiliating. That's what's going to happen to us on our first episode. From the Choir Guile Hotel. From the Choir Hotel. By your favorite artist, Adele Nazim. <laughs> 
So we do these things at the end of each section. At the end of an album, we'll do a wrap-up, and at the end of the B-sides, we'll do another wrap-up. And this is our second Boys for Pele wrap-up. And what we do on this episode typically is we compile all of the emails, all of the feedback that we've received from our listeners, things that we forgot to include in the episode, live tracks that we've discovered, requests that people want. And that's what we're doing here. And not only this isn't only covering just the B-sides. This is covering all of Boys for Pele since we put out Twinkle. Anything that we've received from people, comments and things, other things. Normally that's what we do, but with this episode we're doing something a little special that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I wanted to do it as a Drive All Night Plus episode, but then I thought it's not really right. You know, it's Cooling Belong on Pele. No. no. Does she belong on Choir Girl? Not quite. So it's not quite a Drive All Night Plus episode on its own. And it's not quite a Drive All Night episode for sure, because we only cover the camp. So what we're going to do on this episode, there's so many improvs, David, throughout the 96 tour that we'll, we could never do an episode on. Let's do an episode on this four-line improv that you did one time. No. So we're going to compile our favorite improvs from the Do Drop In tour throughout this episode, and we'll talk about them. I'm so glad because one of the things I've been mourning, and I brought this up with you last time we were together, was that we will never hear the Bentley Helms bumper mm. again. That's not true. We'll find a reason. Ooh, uh, will we? We'll find a All reason. Right, but from here on out, these new songs obviously weren't performed. You don't know that. I just do drop into our... You don't know that. Ooh, maybe the we can rewrite history during soundcheck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank God. There's yeah. a reason to play it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the, you know, when we get to Apollo's Frock, we can come back to Boys for Pele. Mm. Right? We'll play mm. the bumper then. Never if we remember. <laughs> Lately, I've been feeling very accomplished as I look at, as we're ending the year, and I'm looking through my drive, and I'm looking at all the episodes that we've done, and that we're finishing Boys for Pele proper, and we've done every, you know, if there's a sense of accomplishment. And as I look through the Never Shut Up episodes, and knowing that we've done every weekday this year, it just, I feel like, oh, there's that sense that comes over you at the end of the year that's just like, wow, we did it. Like, we had a goal, and we set out to do it. Don't rush me. It's barely October. We're not going to talk about the end of the year. I mean, it's close to the end of the year. uh, Yeah, it is. You're right. How's your October going? So far, so good. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I showed up at your house wearing pumpkin PJs. I haven't looked down. (laughs) Don't. Please don't. (laughs) Um, Everything going the way you want it this October? Well, yes. This is the most amazing October I've ever had. Great. Thank you for everything. Yay, God. Universe. Should we just get into it? Yes. There's a lot of things that we've compiled. And of course, thanks to Shay Stymac, who helped us compile some of the stuff that we had left out. And it's so incredibly helpful. So Shay, your goddess. And should we talk about our guests that we're going to have? Yes. Well, we're going to actually get a chance to talk to a Judy Garland super fan who we (laughs) could not interview. You know, things happen. Things happen. People don't get back to you in time. I don't get back to people in time. And then everything explodes. There's a lot of moving parts. Exactly. So we're going to get to talk to, finally, a Judy Garland super fan. We saved it because we knew the movie was going to come out. Yeah, like, that's why we Yeah, waited. we should go see it. Nah. No. <laughs> All right. So that's happening. And maybe some surprises along the way. Boo. Let's say hi to our Patreon supporters, David. All right. We'd like to say hi to our new patron, Kevin Angioli. We need to talk about Kevin. Our friend, Berkeley Squared, who is very active on our social media, jumped in at the $25 level. Hi, Berkeley. Does a nightingale sing in them? In Berkeley's Squared? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure angels and nightingales bless him aplenty. Gorgeous. Hello, Berkeley. We'd also like to say hello to Eric Williams, who jumped up from the $2 level to the $10 level. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. 
A fine hello to another new patron, Brandy Hobbs. I want to hobnob with Brandy Hobbs. I think we have hobnobbed with Brandy Hobbs in the past. I feel like I'd remember that. Matthew Webb is a new patron at the $10 level. Hi, oh. Matthew. Remember Scarlet's Web? I do. Who cares? It's all about Matthew Webb. <laughs> Agreed. That's it, David. Let's get started with the episode, yeah? Yeah. So we're going to start with this first improv of the Pele era, the first notable. I mean, yes, she did Apollo's frock a couple times or like, you know, an intro, but we've talked about that. So this is one that we haven't talked about yet. And this is from Modern Rock Live on February 4th, 1996. I wanted to know how old were you when you wrote your first song and what was it? Okay, well, I wrote a song called The Jackass and the Toad Song. But it's really, really stupid and goofy, and I think I was eight. Can we hear it? Oh, are you serious? Oh, come on. Um, um, hang on, um, Matt's still there, right? Is yeah, Matt, you there? Okay, um, hang on. Um, cause I'm walking down the road with a jackass and a toad, and I thought that I was fine till I lost my own little mind, but I'm walking down the road. Oh my God, I can't remember. <laughs> that was great. That was The Jackass and the Toad, the first song she ever wrote. Is this the only reason we know about The Jackass and the Toad? No, has she's she been... mentioned it before, but I don't okay. think she'd ever played it before. All right. And this was, you know, she's playful. It's the beginning of the... It's not even... Tour hasn't even happened. I know. She's like on the radio. She's like, oh God, don't make me play don't, that song. Don't make me sing. Okay, fine. Okay, Here fine. <laughs> um, what did you think of that little ditty? Well, I can't believe that you consider Jackass and the Toad worthy of being in the Torkoal because it's in there and I she pulled it. wrote it. I know. And this is a recording. But it's not officially <laughs> released. Well, we're going to revamp the Torkoal for the new year. And Are I, we? I think that I'm going to take that out. Yeah. I think I'm gonna, that's one that's going to get the mm. get the axe. Are you going to take out Midwinter Graces too? Because you're sick of you? I am offended by that statement. I didn't mean to offend you. Speaking of Jackass and the Toad, I want to read you this thing from Performing Songwriter. And this is from March 1994. Tori says, they haunt me, these songs. You see, I've been doing it since I was a little kid, almost before anything else. I can't even remember when I started writing. I was always making up my little ditties, so it's kind of a part of my day. And even, like, if you go as far as when she was speaking to the conservatory, like, for her graduation address, she was like, I write songs every day. <laughs> Lindsey Graham. <laughs> She's been haunted by jackasses since she was four. <laughs> Jackass and the Toad, I could never have written something at the age of five that was that structured. <laughs> God, Tori's nothing not consistent. Of course, her first song involves the word ass. I know. <laughs> like, how can I provoke you? Jackass. Jackass. <laughs> so that was our first one. And, you know, we're going to go through them. a lot of them. Um, a lot of the higher tier improvs, if you know what I mean. So to start out, we're going to go with Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue 11, spring 1998. Really Deep Thoughts asks her, now that you've had some time to get to know Pele, what have you learned from her? And since spring 1998 is literally two years after the release of Pele, uh, and we've been at this for about two years since the release of Horses, I thought, we'll, ask, we'll let Tori answer what Pele has taught her, and then we'll answer what Pele has taught us. 
So Really Deep Thought says, now that you've had some time to get to know Pele, what have you learned from her? And Tori says, oh God, well, how to feel the fire without it burning you up, without it torturing you, because it's one thing to begin to feel alive again and another to rage out of control sometimes. I'm beginning to see when someone is crossing my boundary. I'm beginning to see when I'm crossing someone else's boundary. Sometimes it could get nastier than I would like it to just because that's me, not used to not needing them to get it, not needing them to agree with me, not needing them to understand that this doesn't feel good. That's a huge step instead of pointing the finger. You know, it's about, this is how this made me feel. They don't have to agree or understand if they say, I think you're being unreasonable. That's their choice. And so obviously, it's me going, it's time for me to say goodbye now without needing to tear anyone up over it. It's my fault if I've allowed myself to be devalued. In the end, it's my fault if I continue the pattern. If I don't say no, I won't be devalued anymore. So thoughts, David? I love what she says about feeling the fire without it burning you up. Finding your passion, but not being consumed by it, Mm -hmm. right? And also not stealing that from anyone else, but finding what drives you and what makes you, you. I think that's, if I had to take a snapshot of what this album represents, it's that. How about you? Uh, Yeah, I like that she says, learning when someone is crossing my boundary and learning to be able to say like, no. And that if I don't say no, that it's my fault it's not their fault that it's me that i have to take responsibility when someone is crossing my lines that's not necessarily what pele has taught me though in two years i think pele has given me just like working on this season i've never explored something in such great detail for so long and really from every angle upside down inside out back front we have picked this apart And I feel like I know it so well, but at the same time, I feel like I could start at the top and just explore it a hundred times over and still learn new things because it's so rich and it's so complex. The fact that working on this album for so long has given me that drive to put it out and to finish these episodes and to really get to the heart of it, which has really increased, you know, I think it's done great things for my work ethic. I think it's done good things for me personally. Good things for your work ethic Mm -hmm. because Tori worked so hard. Because she did. I mean, she is a workhorse, but not only in the creating the album did she work really hard. Obviously she did. And it was a labor of love and it was intense and it was passionate and it was her first time producing and it took a long time and it was a big thing. Then she went on the press cycle and was talking about this album all day, every day for weeks and weeks. And then she went on tour and gave the best shows of her life every night for 187 shows. So if she can do that, I certainly can put out Toodles Mr. Jim on time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's what I mean by work ethic. And you did. And I did. <laughs> and she did too. What has it taught you personally about yourself, if anything? I'm going to continue to assess that question okay. as we move forward. And I think that's what great works of art do, sure. right? Don't yeah. don't laugh at me and roll that's your true. eyes. I'm not, I didn't roll my eyes. Um, you know, when we started this show, I was at a very different point in my life than I am now. I don't know. That's interesting. This has helped me kind of reframe whatever journey I've taken over the last couple of months. And I'm, I'm happy to be entering Choir Girl as a new person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that. Mm-hmm. When I started the podcast, I was in a very different place than I am now. Yeah. And I went through a breakup prior to starting Boys for Pele. And... It took so long to get to Pele that I had kind of already processed the breakup, I thought, but it wasn't until going through Pele that I realized like, oh, there's part of this hurt that I hadn't excavated yet, or there's part of this part of my psyche that hadn't healed and I hadn't really looked at in certain 
areas. Not that I have, not that I've fixed it, but I know it's there. <laughs> I know the wound is gaping and bleeding. Well, uh, awareness is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something we didn't read this season actually came from the liner notes for a piano. You want to read this, David? Yes, I do. There comes a time in every musician's development when you reach a crossroads, and in order to develop as a composer and a creative force, you may have to take a road less traveled by the commercial music industry. From where I sit right now in this second, I can honestly say that I do not know where I would be if I had not made Voice for Pele. The reality of the music business was made all too clear to me, and I'm thankful that I have no illusions about what it is. Creating a contemporary and classical record from a songwriter's perspective was not something the record label was willing to embrace. They wanted me to make another Little Earthquakes or another Under the Pink. I tried to explain that Little Earthquakes was rejected initially, and again, I had to fight for Under the Pink to be what it was, by trying to explore the dark feminine through music and to lead a life of musical passion. I was willing to do whatever I had to do in order to grow as a musical force and as a woman. Recording at a church in Ireland and subsequently finishing the record in the Old Georgian outside of Cork, I firmly believe it's the reason I'm sitting here and making music in the way that I am today. The most important things I learned during the Boys for Pele experience was to always ask myself, what is success? Who are your real friends, and why am I making music anyway? Uh, that's really incredible to hear her say that it was so pivotal in her career as it was, you know, I mean, we find this to be her masterpiece. We find this to be a pivotal moment in our own lives. So it's really nice to hear that she, whether she connects to it anymore or whether it is kind of raw and embarrassing to her now that she was so raw, just the act of making it and the way she made it. It's really nice to hear that 10 years later, she feels like it's a very pivotal moment in her career. Agreed. And can I just say I'm exhausted on her behalf? Her label never trusted her. She mm-hmm. had to fight mm-hmm. every single time. It's like, well, we don't think this is the album we want. Oh, it's successful. Just do that again. No, you want to do something different? No. It's like, just let the woman do what she does. Right, right. And I think, too, that that what she says, what is success? Who are your real friends? And why am I making music anyway? That's such a huge question. If you're not making music to be a top of the charts person, if that's not what your goal is, if your goal is to really just put the true expression of yourself out there as it is, then, you, then you're less inclined to listen to people whose goal is something completely different. Mm-hmm. And their goal, if their goal is to make money or whatever, to have a hit and that's not your goal, then you're less inclined to respect that or cave, you know, and I'm glad she didn't cave. I'm sort of surprised to hear that even at this point, she was maybe still forced to ask herself, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Why am I making music? Mm -hmm. I could certainly see that after, you know, the YKTR debacle, like, oh, maybe my motivation wasn't in the right place. But she's still sort of being, I don't know, raked across the coals by the industry that she's like, is this worth it? Why am I doing this? And like, who are you to tell me what the expression of my soul is? Like, why would I... I go back to a story, and we'll get into this years from now when we talk about Walk to Dublin. But... I go back to the story that they were trying to make that the single or they were trying to like get some guitars on there, like get a beat. And then finally it's like, she doesn't want it. And so she just abandoned it completely. Mm-hmm. Now you've perverted it and now you've polluted it and it's not sacred anymore. And you hear that in an unfinished quality. Like she was going, trying to go somewhere with it by putting in that like drum beat or that loop probably by Alan Friedman. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, it's kind of abandoned the whole thing. I love that she felt so strongly about her work that she would fight for it, I guess, to the extent of destroying it yeah. or withholding it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to delete the string arrangement because yeah, forget it. wrong. Oh, you want this to be the single? No. Meh. Delete. Done. <laughs> 
Mario Flores sent us a message to say a long time ago. He sent us this message and he says, Hey guys, I wanted to say thank you for what you do. I came to Tori's music during Scarlet's Walk and as a gay teen, what? As a gay teen in Mexico, I couldn't have imagined how much of an impact her music would have on me. Similarly, I came to your podcast not knowing how much more I had yet to discover in her music. Boys for Pele is probably the back catalog album with which I connected the least. It was too difficult for me to get into while I had much more accessible material to listen to. If not for what you do, it would probably still be that Tori album that I don't get and that I wish she played less of live. I mean, she couldn't play any less of it. Not anymore. Thanks for opening my eyes to a whole new Tori album and what an album it is. That's sweet. Mario, thank you. Thanks, Mario. Are you at all jealous of people who became Tory fans later in life? No. <laughs> well, okay. Put that aside. Maybe had an impression of her from Beekeeper or whatever, and then went back to Paley and were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I mean, that would have been a trip, but I think we still got that from Pink into Paley. Yeah, <laughs> I think like, you're what right. What the fuck is this? That's how no I No matter felt. what yeah. direction you come to it. Yeah. And we've said it over and over again, but I can't believe that the transition from those two albums was as severe as it was. It wasn't gradual. It Mm -hmm. was just like, boom, here we are in Mm -hmm. the underworld. Right. And I loved it. I still love it. The reason I put that there, not just not to congratulate us. That's not why I put it there. The reason I put it there was because he says through doing the episodes or through listening to the episodes, he has a different feeling about Pele now than he did when we started. And I wanted to ask you, do you have a different feeling about Pele now since we started? I don't have a different feeling about it, but each song I gained a new appreciation for, Mm -hmm. even those that I didn't have a personal connection to. Mm -hmm. As we took a deep dive, I really sort of was able to wrap my head around everything she was going for, I think. Yeah. Listening, (laughs) I think you've said this yourself and it's kind of embarrassing, but listening back to older episodes, and we've been talking about Haley for so long. I don't do that. That Muhammad, my friend, for example, was like a year and a half ago. I put it on the other night and I was like oh this is kind of good <laughs> I'm learning just like from the quote whatever the quotes and everything I'm learning more about these I don't know still I feel like we did an okay job I think we, of course yeah. I, you know I'm very proud of it there's one other thing in my life that I've worked this hard on and that was my web series Stallions Day Amore yes and mm-hmm. season two in particular and I feel like that's a complete representation of who I am as a person as a director and I feel like this is who I am as a Tory fan like I want every moment in there I want to keep these time capsules i want to keep these records because this album is so important to me and i don't think that i've necessarily changed my thought on the album if anything i love it more now than i did before Mm -hmm. it's so much richer than i ever could have imagined and i knew it was rich you know i knew it was complex but it's still it's like a spider web that just keeps spanning out i love hearing you say that you're proud of it i I think the season yeah of course i am well i would hope so it was was tremendous intimidating it was an intimidating project it was yeah let's go to another improv shall we before we get into talking about the songs i'm ready why don't we do another one from the same performance do it this is again from modern rock live and this is a very important improv wouldn't you say Tori's career. I would. And I can't believe how loose she was yeah. back then. She was like, I'm just going to do whatever. It's an improv, but it's also kind of a sonogram of a new song. Yeah. So get into it. This is an improv that she called For Mark. And there's no way we could give it an episode on mm. its own, right? No. I mean, it may pop up in Never Seen Blue. Yes. It's closely linked to Never Seen Blue. Absolutely. And maybe, maybe Abbey Road. Maybe. A little something. Maybe. Yeah. We would never do an episode on Abbey Road, though. 
Who can say? Who can say? So for Mark, this is for Mark from Modern Rock Live, February 4th, 1996. Tori Amos is with us on Modern Rock Live. Can we ask you to do another song for us? Uh, yeah. But I'm not going to ask you what song until after. Yeah, because I don't know. Yeah, that's okay. That's cool. Some Tori Amos here on Modern Rock Live, live from Electric Lady, and the title of that song? I don't know. It just happened. Um, for Mark, how's that? For Mark, David, this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I am so sad to say goodbye to this era. She was never like this again, right? She's like doing an in-studio performance, and they're like, play something, and she's like, all, all right, right, let me make something I guess I'll just kind of, you know, dance around the piano here. Amazing. And we yeah. get whatever pours out of her. Yeah. 
incredible. Peak of her powers. Mm -hmm. And you hear a little samurai in there. Did you catch it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that improv. That's kind of circulated throughout the years. And it never became anything So yet. You know, it hasn't become anything yet. There's maybe a little bit of Never Seen Blue like we talked about. But Mm -hmm. that was an improv that deserves mention on our improv episode. So for Mark. So let's keep going. We really fucked up, David. What? We left so much out of Professional Widow. It doesn't sound like us. I know. Well, let's start here. Let's play this little clip from BBC Radio, June 7th, 1997. Corey Amos returns to the charts at number two this week with a remix version of her summer single, Professional Widow. It reached number 20 in July 96 and then disappeared out of the chart. But after a complete reworking by remixer Armand Van Helden, it became a club hit before leaping into this week's chart. And it's so hooky that the bass line's been sampled in the Lisa Stansfield versus Dirty Rotten Scoundrel single. So from one woman and her piano to a dance anthem, what does Tori make of it all? Remixes are a tricky thing because especially dance remixes, they're not trying to make the tune that you made and you're not trying to make what they made. So what you kind of do is you run off at midnight with this, I don't know, delicious being and you kind of don't know where you're going and you figure if all else fails, you've got a gold visa in your birth. Do you feel your music lends itself well to being remixed? Well, I'm told it does. I base things around the piano and the arrangements how I hear them. I come from a real different world than the dance world, but there's a lot of rhythm in my left hand as a player. However, I hear it differently than the dance guys do. So they kind of get a kick out of taking my vision and then applying their vision. And I've had a, to be honest with you, I've really had fun with it. Have you had to bop round your handbag to any of your tunes? Yeah, I do sometimes. Professional Widow is one where um, it's really good when you have a margarita. What sort of people come to see your shows? I have a big internet crew that shows up that are sort of the rejects that never made it to college, so they're the hackers. Now, I guess in the late 60s, Easy Rider was with Harley Davidson, and now it's with a Mac. Hmm, I think she means a computer, not a dirty raincoat. This is pretty smart. So before we unpack her insult to all of us, <laughs> calling us all rejects who yeah. never went to college. Dropouts. Before we unpack any of that, let's play this Lisa Stansfield versus Dirty Rotten Scoundrels mix of her song, People Hold On.
didn't know that. I love Lisa Stansfield. I didn't know that either. It's the same beat, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, they just very like recognizable. lifted it. You're yeah. welcome, Lisa. <laughs> I didn't know there was any connection between Lisa Stansfield and Tori Amos. Do you think that Tori would be dancing around in her room with a margarita listening to Professional Widow? Just one. Just one margarita. A few. Tori, really? Probably yeah. a few. <laughs> and her comment about that gold. If everything, if anything goes wrong, at least you got a gold visa in your purse. That's how I feel. 90s Tori. Here's another little bit from an interview we found on YouTube. In 1996, DJ Supremo Armin van Helden remixed Professional Widow, turning it into Tori's biggest hit in the UK to date. But what did she make of it? Obviously, it's so different than what I do. He uses rhythm in a way that is uniquely him. And um, it, it spoke to a lot of people. It's one thing when somebody adds something. It's another thing when your work is being cut up and reduced to um, Moon and June, you know? I don't think Van Helden did that. I think that he um, retained her attitude and made it about a vibe. So this is clearly about Professional Widow. We left some things out. This is from Upside Down Fanzine, issue three, winter 1994. This isn't about Professional Widow specifically, obviously, but I'll be the questioner and you be Tori. Ready? The executioner asks... (laughs) How do you have the objectivity to change a song once it's written? You call your songs babies. Isn't that like calling your baby aesthetically challenged? You just take the baby in, give it a facelift, do a fair faucet. Why not? There are two levels of writing. When you speak truth and when you say something that is very moving, but there are many ways to tell a story. Why do you think there were storytellers in a tribe? There's a reason for that. They're good at it. They have kept developing this skill for hundreds of years. I think that if you're willing to let it not work out until you feel that you've said what you wanted to say, this is the first step of objectivity because you're not afraid of not having it right. Do you remember that line in Educating Rita, Assonance? It's getting the rhyme wrong. You have to be okay that you're going to get it wrong, but I kind of live in assonance. So my whole work is getting rhyme wrong. It works. So it's a real lovable place to be in because you know that you're putting a thought out there that means something to you. And then you're crossing it out. It means something to you. It brings back to memory. You feel something, and yet you're crossing it out because, you know, sometimes you may go, that's a cop-out, or it's just not really what I'm trying to say here. Or you really do want that tuck and suck. Come on, let's face it. There's this line that I wrote for something that you will never hear because the line was crossed out. The line was, nothing is all you ever wanted. Well, we fucking know that. We all know that. That's so boring, even though it's true, right? So this is true. Nothing is all you ever wanted. It just doesn't say anything. We know that. Who gives a shit? Sometimes just because it's a true statement doesn't mean anybody cares. So that's where the skill of storytelling comes in. Nothing is all you ever wanted. Mm. What song do you think that comes from? Prior to Pele, obviously, because this was in 94, winter of 94. Okay. Okay, get it in your head. I'm trying. And then I'm going to... Jam it in there. Okay, I have my guess. Ready? Honey? Honey? Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. I would say Baker Baker. 
Oh. A good quote about getting a facelift for your songs and really trying to figure out the way into the songs, right? And like what you're doing yes. as a storyteller. And I'm sorry. I have a lot of respect for journalists who have to interview Tori when they ask a question like that. And she goes way, way out Ooh. in left field. Like a very straightforward question. And she's like, well, let me tell you. Well, I like that. I mean, we she gives good interview. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from a telephone interview with W.K. Horowitz on October 30th, 1996. So 23 years ago, nearly to the day. I'm very interested in what is strong and what is weak in a person. Interested in my vision of self, how people see me instead of how I see myself. I'll pull out each part of this being that is judged harshly, and some of these parts are extreme. For instance, professional widow is an extreme part. It can get hard because I want to be king. All of us women want to be king, but we have to be queens. You know, it's like Lady Macbeth or something. You can't be king until all the rest of the men have been killed off, and it's hard. I can sometimes surprise myself in my opinions. We are often taught what to think, not how to think, and you need to train yourself to be open to different ways of feeling. How do I form my own opinions? You have to train yourself how to think. What do you think about that, David? I love that because one of the things I've credited Tori with is teaching me how to think or how to ask questions. And I think without her influence, there may have been questions that I hadn't asked without her. So how about you? Just questioning everything, religion, identity. I don't know. I agree that you ha- you're often taught what to think and not how to think. And mm. that's like the goal is to get you to think critically and analytically for yourself. And then once you can do that to like turn it in on- onto yourself and into yourself, judge your own life and assess your own behavior. And I wish we'd included that in the Professional Widow episode because I think, you know, she talked a lot about wanting to be king, not wanting to be queen. But I love this line. You can't be king until all the rest of the men have been killed off. <laughs> then you get to be king. Mm. So that shuts a lot of light on what professional widow is trying to do get them all out of here this is from addicted to noise january 1997 again talks about professional widow again we didn't include it sorry sorry world addicted to noise asks your songs have been evolving especially on this latest tour some have different refrains added in and others have been totally reworked have any of the songs surprised you and how much they've changed And Tori says, well, Professional Widow at the organ was sort of a surprise laughs. (laughs) Part of my crew told me that when they would tour with other bands, the show would start and be an hour and 26 minutes every night. Every night for like 50 shows. Do you realize what it takes to get it on like that every night? I think that's quite a skill. But it's also about being a machine. I think you get bored when you've stopped letting the material shapeshift. And if you figure that we can shapeshift, you have to figure that a song can shapeshift. I'm really into this shapeshifting idea. (laughs) People have been talking about it for centuries, whether it's Native American or Celtic, Egyptian or Mayan or whatever. You are you, but yet you're not just you anymore. That's really fascinating to me. That's where this whole idea, one plus one equals eight, comes in. The outcome being greater than the sum of its parts. It's really a deep dive into how she sees her performances Mm -hmm. and and you'd be hard-pressed i think to find a tour the degree of which varying obviously but you'd be hard-pressed to find a tour where a song doesn't evolve over the course of the tour if it's played enough you know sure and that's what's so interesting about most of her work live is that you can pick out a song someone could play a version of father lucifer and i can without a doubt tell you exactly what tour it's from because it's evolved to a certain point and the version has evolved or the arrangement's different or whatever. 
And then if I know that song well, and if I've listened to it even once or twice before, I could tell you what city it was too, because there's markers and it's never really the same. Mm -hmm. Even if typically the arrangement is the same, for example, Bliss on the last tour or Blood Roses on the last tour, even though the arrangement was similar, each performance had a different intensity and a different moment, you know? And that's what's really special and remarkable about her live work. Agreed. And I would love to have access to whatever her pre-show ritual is. Doingity, um, doingity, doingity, doing. No. <laughs> like whatever she does when she when it's just her, when she's kind of finalizing the set list, you know, aside from whatever conversation she's had at the meet and greet, I do feel like she has a way of tapping into a larger conversation or what even individuals in the audience are needing to hear when she creates her set list. And I would just love to know what her pre-show ritual is when she's like writing the songs down and what that looks like for her. I don't think there's ever been a camera around where she's been like, okay, we're going to do this song here and let's do no, it in this order. I don't think so. If she has the letters that people give her there, if she looks at her hand where she's written down the request, how that comes to be. And especially when she's touring with a band, do they get any input? Like, hey, this one section, we they could and we've just never known. Like, this is Maddie's choice, this one spot. Right before Wednesday, we get to, we play whatever Maddie wants there or whatever, you know? I'll bet they don't. I bet, I bet yeah, She's certainly bet they do not. Notorious control freak. Right. It's all her. Yeah. All her. But still, I would love to, I would love to get a window into how that happens. Yeah. Should we do another improv? Yeah, we should. Okay. This next improv comes straight from... WHFS just passing through on February 11th, 1996. The tour is almost happening. The tour starts February 23rd. She's about two weeks or less away from the tour. Here we go. that it's throaty it's sexy you know she's like grinding on that bench you know she was she's got she's trying to lift the piano yeah Yeah. so there's shades of jupiter Uh right i thought i knew myself so well but also voodoo Mm -hmm. right there Mm -hmm. for a minute i knew you so well yeah yeah Mm -hmm. themes that she was exploring on the album themes that she was bringing to life live as she's going through this radio tour tori has a unique style and usually even when she's improvising it sounds like her for Mm -hmm. lack of a better way to put it but as short as this improv is it's very unique it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that she would typically do right so it almost sounds like the intro to cornflake girl kind of similar to what she would do in 98 to yeah. intro like an acapella intro uh, that would play that. around and meander a little bit mm-hmm. but i love that one we're on to marianne can you believe we left anything out of the marianne episode how could we have i i feel like there's nothing that exists that we didn't read on that episode we talked about the sludge mm-hmm. everything everything what's left 
Shay says, mm. you forgot this from Us Magazine, December 1996. Yeah. Tori says, my songs are live. It's like I'm trying to translate for them in a language of music, rhythm, and tone. It's also like translating another piece of woman, of man, of us. Amos's lyrics are as inventive as her speech, and she often counters the more heavy-duty imagery in her songs, blood, Christ, crucifixion, with Dr. Seussian rhymes like tuna rubber a little blubber in my igloo she says i'd like to think that my work has multi-dimensionality that i can change a pair of shoes in the middle of a song and it's okay that there's no structure that says i have to wear the same pair all the way through as long as i've got feet it's all right i feel we did read that we did we must have yes yeah uh, the, the, i don't know the how the that made it in our document having feet yes having it all feet. we had to have read it uh-huh. but it's fine i like reading it again yeah it's worth it famously laid over the lyrics to this song i think is the piglet photo right yes in the booklet in the that's booklet. the photo that accompanies the lyrics mm-hmm. but when i asked you so i asked david earlier when you think about the pig photo what song do you associate that with? Lucifer. And you said? Yeah. <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> Without missing a beat. He couldn't wait to tell you. Beat. Uh, why? Because it's about the hidden, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And kind of acknowledging the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of or mm-hmm. that you haven't been wanting to give airtime to, I guess. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. Just have a sense of humor, okay? That too. <laughs> you remember that line? Yes, of course. Yeah. Just with some of the pictures, just... I have a sense of humor. Okay? Madonna and child. It sounded like Madonna <laughs> saying that. Like uh-huh. she, she even evokes Madonna in that yeah. line from Madonna's press conference or something. There's something there that reminds me of Madonna. You're so right. And uh, so some of the pictures just have a sense of humor, okay? But yeah, so the piglet photo, huh? We never really talked about that throughout the season. Well. I mean, we talked a little bit about how it became a billboard. Yeah. Who threw shade at her? Wasn't it Ani DeFranco who was like, I don't need to take a picture of myself breastfeeding a piglet yes, and put it on a billboard like to, get, her, yeah. to sell records. And we talked about the Did local news. Did that sell news. any records, honestly? I don't know. We talked about the local news coverage that right. I remember and how, right. you know, that was enough for my mom to want to ban me from the show. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if she wishes that she did. Probably. This is a little bit from Pajama Party UK, which was a show that she was on where she gets to have like a slumber party with some girls. You know, she gets to put on pajamas and like have the slumber party. And she talks about never being able to have had a slumber party when she was younger because she always was the one playing piano at birthday parties and always working that Mm. she never got to like hang out or just be a kid. But in particular, this one section, she talks about the piglet photo. So I wanted to play that here. Now, what is that experience you're having with a pig on the front of your album? You're nursing a pig. Yeah. Yep. Was that your idea? It was four days old. Little, little, tiny baby. Boy critter. It was a boy pig. It was a little baby boy critter. And he, uh, he was so tired and hungry and sad. And it just kind of did its thing. He did it all on his own then. Well, you know, did he do? They ne- they never they never do it all on their own. So do, do they? She, she was tell- she was giving him a little. No. Yes. And he. No. <laughs> that defied her. And did it, did it feel nice though? It felt wonderful. Did it? Yeah, it did. But he still didn't get any milk, did he? He didn't get. That's what I was gonna say. I mean, he didn't get anything. But do you know what? He fell. He fell asleep. He didn't. He just. He curled up and fell asleep, and it was just kind of a beautiful moment and the whole picture was about um you know representing what we hide what's not kosher Mm -hmm. what people just judge and have such a problem with so 
Well, that's certainly going to get people talking. Well, it's, yeah, that's what I think good, good music and art does makes you think. Should we do another improv? Yeah, we should. Here is Freezing Cold in the studio from April 14th, 1996, 99X Atlanta. Hi, guys. And good in there? like a meatball uh i miss this tori so much yeah i think she was really cold and i think that's how this song came <laughs> it's worthy of a song yeah. yeah i think we could get her cold again if she well, does a winter tour maybe she'll do some meatball improvs maybe but regardless she was so she was just comfortable yeah and that's who she was as an artist you put her with a piano and just see Done. what comes out yeah. i don't know we're on hey jupiter now we were too busy crying Jupes. with jamie know, we really cried. Ugh. we left out all these quotes <laughs> So we did a goof, David. When I copied and pasted this into our document, I didn't keep who sent it. I looked through our email inbox, and I looked through our Twitter messages and our Facebook messages. I couldn't find it again, but I still want to read it. So if you sent this message, email us, and then we'll do a wrap-up for the wrap-up. If you're out there. If you're out there, let us know. (laughs) But someone out there said, you're the best. Catching up on episodes now, listening to the wrap-up as we speak, and still, as we speak again, right? Yeah. We were talking about the first one. Now it's the second one. I probably should have called the hotline, but I'm so fucking shy. Don't be shy, caller slash emailer. (laughs) Call the hotline, 323-296-9955. Okay, here's a thought for you to ponder, if you haven't already. But I didn't hear anyone talk about this, so please tell me if someone did and I missed it. And Hey Jupiter, when she sings, took my leather off the shelf. Do you think she's referencing the song Leather? Yes. (laughs) As in, I thought this was forever, so I put my leather on the shelf for good, but then I had to take it down. Kind of obvious, but are there any other instances where she possibly references one of her other songs directly? None are coming to mind for me. How about you? Think about it. I'll be out here listening anonymously. Mm. I think immediately of Shake, Shake, Shake Me Sane from Sweet the Sting. 
Shock Me Sane yeah. from Cruel. Shake. Shake uh-huh. Me Sane from Sweet the Sting. Okay. And I'm like, yeah. oh, she knows what she's doing. She's sequelizing herself. She's sequelizing. The Cher Tori Amos universe. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, she's absolutely doing that. Are yeah. there any other instances where she references herself uh, or her other must work? Be, well, let's please not dive into the Pretty Good Year sequel controversy. We don't want to get into no, Lucy. we don't. No, 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 no. She definitely has lucified herself, too. Mm-hmm. There's many Lucys out there running around. Pretty Good Year, Oh to the Banana King, part two. Lucifer, question mark? No. Yeah, this is Lucifer ridiculous. for sure. No. Yeah, well, at least live, the Lucy right. Girl version, and then Edge of the Moon, there's a Lucy oh, in there. Oh, that's true. Yeah, So there's course. tons of Lucys in her catalog. She's out to part four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other songs that we can think of where she references herself and her, other, her past work? I know she references Landslide in Toast. You pulled me out of a landslide well, of a of landslide. Yeah. 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 So there's that. But this is an interesting example in Jupiter when she references leather, right? Right. So she's talked about kind of adapting different roles sexually. So I think that's just like a reference to that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that Jupiter came out of a really difficult time in her life. And she talked about having... There's some quotes that we don't have today, but on the episode, we have them where she talks about doing some really bad things. And possibly there was a love triangle and there was like some... Maybe she wasn't being herself. And I I think that Leather, the song, and Leather, this reference, is some sort of sexual reference. Mm. Especially because it's followed up with for the girl who couldn't choose between the shower or the bath. And like it seems like she's choosing between two people or two different worlds somehow. So yeah, I do think it's a definite reference to herself and her prior work, but also revived for the now. I mean, we must have gotten into it, but she's talked about how her relationship with Eric specifically sort of helped her work through some of her trauma and that she was able to let go some of her role playing that she felt the need to indulge in. I feel like there's another reference to some prior work in Abnormally Attracted to Sin, but I can't quite place the song. But then I don't know if I'm just thinking like her themes are always so similar, like her career themes, stepping into your womanhood, religion, violence, sexual and otherwise. And when she sings in flavor, you must pick a side. Do you choose fear? Do you choose love? That's a thematic link to a lot of her stuff like i immediately go back to sweet sangria even though it's not necessarily a reference to sweet sangria which side do you believe in it matters now to you and me like that theme that thread so it's not necessarily a reference but it is kind of and isn't there another reference to something on native invader as well fear and love to any to her previous work we have to take it back to oprah for a second oprah has said many times there is only fear and love so i feel like tori has tapped into that a little bit do you find that you operate from fear more or from love fear (laughs) okay well glad you thought about it no question (laughs) should we do another improv then yeah why not all right for this next section i've selected a medley improv david and this is from may 7th 1996 in burlington vermont this is actually an improv from tour, not just from a radio station, Mm. but from tour. Thank you. 
Talk about a virgin and a whore. Mary Poppins and Madonna. Oh, back to back. <laughs> what more could you want? Ass to ass. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> yeah, so she was having fun. Not necessarily, you know, an improv in terms of like she's making up the words as she goes along, but she's, ma- you know, she's having fun with it. And then but she kind says, of. And then at the end, she's like, sorry, this is boring. boring. God, forget it. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry, I, just I, didn't do even, this. I don't even care. Oh. I don't even know why I tried. <laughs> <laughs> You're not into it. Not I know. It. I, I don't hear it. any applause. <laughs> I live for the applause. Like every date I've ever had. We are in the little Amsterdam section of our episode, David. Can you believe we're already here? Damn, Amsterdam. Brandon Hellman wrote us to say, I'm listening to the Boys for Pele wrap-up. Wow. The Mm. first one. Someone (laughs) should. Part one. And I know it's too late for this, but just FYI, I can't remember if you discussed the range in the original episode as possibly referring to prison, which I don't think we did. We never talked about the prison aspect of it. (laughs) But then, but he sends us an article and he says, in this article, a prisoner refers to his cell block as the range which makes sense because she says coming out of the cell in my brain so don't take me back to the range i'm just coming out of the cell in Mm -hmm. my brain i always assumed it was home on the range reference but now i am team prison and you know i love a good team and i certainly love a good team prison hashtag team prison i he hashtag brandon hellman hashtagged it for us team prison so when he sent this this interpretation sort of made me question who the narrator was if they're going back to the range and if it does mean prison then could the narrator be the brown man don't Mm -hmm. take me back to the range i'm just coming out of cell in my brain and mama slept with the sheriff to get him out of jail and then she ends up dead so he's being sent back for her murder it's like days of our lives i know Mm. don't get me started on the stovetop range Oh yeah, Which we I was that so up. embarrassed and humiliated. If you want to hear our humiliation, go back to the wrap up one. Yeah. What do you think? Is it prison? Maybe. And you know, one of the things we've talked about repeatedly is how Little Amsterdam seems to not be a very personal song for Tori. It seems like she's sort of slipping into storytelling mode, but that's clearly not true. There's something very deep there that she's excavating that's clear when she performs it live. And now we have all these interpretations that Mm -hmm. people are writing in. So this is, there's something deep happening here and I love it. Yeah. I'm team prison. Are you? Yeah. Well, that's a new development. I know. (laughs) This next improv comes from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, May 30th, 1996. Womp, there it is. Okay, guys, Everything there is to know inside 
So we're in the putting the damage on area of this episode, and we received an email from Sax Eno, and it says, Dear Ephraim and David, I had to reach out to you guys because I'm in awe of the brilliance of Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. Thanks, Sax. I'm pretty sure that it's the most comprehensive investigation into Tori's world that's ever been done. Pretty ins- sure? Pretty sure. How dare you? <laughs> the insane amount of research that you guys do, the way that you explore the live versions, the interviews with key people involved in Tori's work, and your unique perspective on Tori's lyrics. It's fucking awesome. You guys are really uncovering some deep wisdom that I don't think has been discovered before. I'm one of those to Venus and back Tori fans, meaning mm. that's my favorite Tori album. I don't meet a ton of people that are obsessed with it like I am, so I'm looking forward to a deep dive into that one. I'm pretty sure that concertina the single mix is my favorite tori song i think it may be because of those descending chords and that sexy bass line and that lyrical imagery that presents social anxiety so poetically i had some questions for you guys about putting the damage on and i'll try to make it brief because i know that you're super busy not that busy he also didn't try that hard <laughs> it's very long it's long i'm not a musician but i was shocked when you pointed out that it's a very sad song that's played in mostly major chords instead of minor chords i never realized that and it's so interesting when you said that the line glue stuck to my shoe probably symbolizes tori being stuck in one place i was like wow i've listened to the song a million times and i've never picked up on that it seems so obvious now that was me thank it was you. you thank you that was a moment for me too I, was it occurred, yeah oh yeah i do recall that i don't listen to the episodes back don't yeah. you though i don't you i mean should. I, I listen to them when i edit them yeah and then i move on my interpretation of the orange rind lyric was that Tori was saying to this guy, I know you so well. I know you so much better than everyone else does. I even know small things about you, like why you play with an orange rind. It's because X, Y, Z. Does anyone else know that? I doubt it. I also love the way that you connected the skinny legs could use sun lyric to Angie Dickinson being known for her legs. Genius. Angie Dickinson is such a graceful badass. I always love the way that Tori used her as a metaphor throughout the song. Another genius observation that you guys made was that Angie Dickinson's character on Policewoman often goes undercover. So if Tori was thinking of that while writing these lines, that means that Tori is essentially saying, I'm doing an impression of someone who pretends to be other people. Super clever and complicated. The thing that I wanted to point out about this song that I haven't heard anyone else mention is the military vibe. I could be completely reading into something that isn't really there, but you have the snare drum in the Twilight mix. There's the mention of the platoon. Uh, see, I said it, platoon. 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 As she would. There's the mention of the platoon. Uh-huh. And there's the use of what I believe is a French horn. The liner notes for the song just say brass. And again, I'm no musician, so I'm not even positive that there are French horns being played in there. But that's what it sounds like to me. My understanding is that in film and TV shows, the general rule is that a French horn or similar brass instruments are used in heroic moments, particularly heroic military law enforcement moments. When the composer wants to tell the audience this person is a hero, they almost always use a French horn. Also, when Tori sings the lyric, light in your platoon, a horn does a little thing in the background that's exactly what you would expect to hear in this moment were it a scene from a movie. Even though the Twilight mix removes the trying not to move ghost passing through section, I really love that version. I like that she lost the horn intro. The harmonies are to die for, and I personally love the snare drum. It's a very unusual choice for Tori. If they just wanted some rhythm in there, there are other choices. Snare drum obviously has a military feeling, but it's also used in film and TV shows in situations where a character is bossing another character around. Again, I could be reading into something that isn't really there, but I've always wondered, is it possible that the military vibe has a role in the story of putting the damage on? But if there's military reference in the song, what does it mean? In one of Tori's sound bites that you guys played about putting the damage on, Tori talked about not being able to finish writing the song and that she spent time with the song every day going on walks with her and watching movies together. So maybe there was some inspiration from whatever Tori and the song were watching on TV. 
I can see Tori sitting on the couch next to the song, putting the damage on, the two of them just kind of hanging out, you know, like they do, and Policewoman comes on, and it's and Tori is inspired by it, maybe even subconsciously. I decided to take a look at the Policewoman main title sequence, and guess what? They use brass, and what I think is a French horn. If you listen, there seems to be a French horn playing a melody that's mixed way in the back. It kind of reminds me of the horns in, guess what song, David? Putting damage. the damage on. Mm. <laughs> Here's the link to the Policewoman intro, in case you're curious, which we were, and we watched it. Obviously, the main title sequence is upbeat while putting the damage on is cinematically sad, so there's probably not a connection to be made here. But even if the horns have nothing to do with Angie Dickinson or Policewoman, I would still like to know why use horns for this song? Why use a snare drum? Why use the word platoon? My favorite moment in putting the damage on is the moment that you guys also pointed out when there was that huge surge of emotion, brass and vocals all at the same time. And she says, I've got a place to go. I've got a ticket to your late show. <laughs> It's that crescendo that really feels like she's the hero in a movie because she's finally moved on. Anyway, I hope that you're still reading this. Yes, we are. That I haven't bored you to tears. No, you haven't. I'm such a huge fan of your podcast. And I've been telling all my Tory friends about it, and they are also obsessed. Hey, guys. I'm attaching a poster that the real Angie Dickinson recently signed for me of the lyrics from Putting the Damage On over a photo of a leggy Angie Dickinson. Perhaps it was an odd thing to ask her to sign, but she was super cool about it. When I asked her if she was familiar with Putting the Damage On, she said, Yes, I'm aware of it, but I've never actually heard it. It came out about 25 years ago, right? Is Angie Dickinson British? Good lord. You're, you're <laughs> stuck your version, on a time. she is, yeah. I think she's British. She's I have, classy. I've never I've, well, I've heard never. of putting the damage on. Putting the damage on. Mm. Platoon. How you say damage? How you say platoon? <laughs> I've got one here that's a little unusual. This is kind of strange. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a, there's a song written about you uh, by Tori Amos. Oh, yeah, I've called, heard about it. It's called Putting the Damage On. I wanted to know if I could get you to sign. I know it's kind of okay. unusual. No, but I've heard, uh, I know uh, about it. I don't think I've ever seen it. Heard it. It's really good. It's is beautiful, it? and it's a, it's very, uh, it's a beautiful tribute to it's you. It's about 25 years old. It is about 25 years old, yeah. We chatted for a bit about Tori and the context of Angie's name being mentioned. I hope that she went home and listened to it and was flattered by it. Love you guys. Looking forward to more podcasts. Sax Eno. P.S. If you've never seen Dress to Kill, it's pretty amazing. And Angie Dickinson is legendary. Mm. There's a lot to unpack in that it email. Sure is. Um, I think that, in my opinion, and maybe you can tell me if you agree, David, the military theme is very present in the song, Platoon, the, the drum, the snare drum in the mix, and then also the horns, the brass. Of course, it's intentional. Of course, it's purposeful. And I think that when Tori talks about throughout this cycle for Pele, she talks about this war 
that it's about a war. And that was something you struggled with throughout the season. I did. Finding that context and figuring out, like, it almost seemed kind of like you thought it was dismissive to think it was about a war between men and women. Right? You, I think you expressed that a couple times where it's like you don't want to just lessen the album or liken it to a war between men and women and just kind of dismiss it. Not that I thought that it did that, but I think that maybe these war themes come in as a testament. She's fighting for her life. I think that she's fighting to gain control of her life and to gain control of self. And this is her make or break moment. And very much like that, it's a war. Yeah, I continue to have a hard time with that because it seems like a narrative thread that she picks up like on the second half of the album. And she's like, again, this idea of the war and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't remember <laughs> the first instance of the war. She says army in the very first song. Yeah, As long right, as your army keeps, keeps perfectly, perfectly still. still. Okay, fine. And then she's fighting a war with that chair in the yeah. Carlite Sneeze video. <laughs> oh my God, you love that. And I, love I, that. I love that you love that. I love yeah. that. That's my favorite yeah. visual. In terms of this arrangement of damage, would we say this is canon? This is a remix that was never really officially released, so... I wouldn't call the remix canon, but it's certainly insightful into her thoughts on the song whenever, because it's a sanctioned remix. It mm-hmm. is clearly a remix that they did. Right. That was something that they worked on. Mm-hmm. We don't know how they feel about it because it was never released, but presumably they felt good about it because it was almost released. Pretty close. Yeah. And it has that military beat, so mm-hmm. it plays up that aspect of mm-hmm. this sort of war going on, I guess. I don't know. Fascinating. Yeah. It's not hard for me to see the war themes in the song or in the album, really, especially with Not the Red Baron, Another Pilot Down, Crashing into the Underworld. Maybe it's not a perfect metaphor, but I'm okay with it. I'm working. Working my way back. Working your way back? Yeah. Maybe you can have her read you the album. Take out all that war nonsense. Why not? We're all doing things over again. Sure. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's do another improv. Okay. This next one that we're going to play is from Dallas, Texas, June 15th, 1996. And it's dubbed the 1800 Margarita song. Oh. You know, she loved margaritas for a time. Who doesn't love a sweet, sweet Marg? <laughs> a sweet, sweet Marg. Yeah. You know, it's not my go-to drink. It really isn't. Yeah. Although, look behind you. I have, no joke, four full family-sized bottles of sweet and sour yeah, mix. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And I think I told you when I went backstage, she had like a bar setup happening. A Marg? Yeah. Marg bar. A Marg bar. bar. <laughs> Honey, let me get Troy you a, a Marg. Yes, let me give you a drink. Let me make kiss on your so, face so 98 she has a sweet sweet mark bar yeah. and 2007 <laughs> santa comes out giving margaritas to people and splashing yeah, them with it so cleave. she's still into it if Ugh. she was into it for those 10 years you can imagine she's into it for these last 10 years right whenever i think of her and margaritas i think of steve caton there's a quote somewhere where she talks about steve caton gave her her first margarita and when we interviewed him we brought that up and he said did I? Like, he kind of remembered. I think that my memory of it is that he remembered it, but not entirely. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. Like, he didn't remember that incident, but he remembered them, like, going out to drink. God, how old would she have been? 23, 24. Yeah. Anyway, this is the 1800 Margarita song. Right one. It's my community. 
if you're interested in being on our Choir Girl season, make sure you email me right away because we're already some of those songs are already full up. So if you're interested, get in your request. Email us at songsoftoriamiss at gmail.com and we will try to accommodate you. Yeah, we will. You can also call us on our hotline, 323-296-9955, and just leave us a voicemail. How you feel about a song... And we'll play it on that episode. That's better for us. Do we have a do it again super fan yet? I'm not sure. I don't have my spreadsheet, <laughs> but I'm sure Kel- little Kelly is the person that I would ask to be on do it again episode because she is famously on the DVD begging Tori to, to play do it again. Oh, that's funny. We're now in the twinkle portion of our show. You want to read this tweet from Jean Everett? Jean Everett tweets, I always took twinkle as songs towards her fans that if she could go through everything she has, we could see her as an inspiration. Sort of another letter to Greg from Pretty Good Year. Hmm. Well, that's generous of Tori. What do you mean? To send out a song to us in response oh. to a letter that we never bothered to write. Right. <laughs> I always like when people take the initiative to reach out to me first. Like, so. thank you for standing me. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a song. What do you think about that? You know, I like that. Twinkle as a song towards the fans. In a way, I sure can because I sure can. I sure can. I don't know. I wouldn't say that maybe she wrote it for us or that she had us in mind, but there's something when you see someone go through something really emotional or really traumatic or something really hard and they come out on the other end stronger, there's something really inspiring about that. Like I've seen, you know, you have, and especially if you look to your long-term friendships, friends that you know that have been through something and here they are years later, a stronger, better person for it. That is really inspiring. Yeah, regardless of whether or not that was her intention, I feel like that's what we take from much of her music, yes. Twinkle and Beyond. Yes. So I think that that's accurate in that sense. I'm going to bring a little Venus in here. Bring skip it. Skip ahead. What's funny is when we first got Bliss, that was kind of my interpretation of that, that that was sort of about her relationship with the fans uh, and all of was that. It, did it have anything to do with that video? No, I was going to say. Really? And then the video came out and I was like, <laughs> mm-hmm, tap my nose at Tori. I got, I got it. it. Horns. <laughs> I actually don't think that's true. but <laughs> Anymore, you've changed no, your yeah. thought on it. Okay. Well, can't wait to get there. And we're going to get there sooner rather than later because we don't. there's never an album again in Tori's catalog that has as many B-sides as Boys for Pele. Is that true? That's true. Not Absolutely even under the true. pink? Well, uh, since Boys for Pele. Oh, like we're since, never from course. this point forward going to have this many B-sides to cover. It took us a whole year basically to cover these B-sides. I know. And I probably already said this, but I'll say it again. I'm still mourning the loss of Bentley Helms. Oh. That going forward, we'll never hear it, <laughs> well, hear it again. We'll find a reason. I may, but I feel we'll like every line section reason. is going to start with me just getting shocked to death. I don't know, <laughs> know how I feel about that. For, at least for the next year. Yeah, that's fine. Should we do another improv? Yes. Okay. So the next one we're going to do is a little different than the other ones that we have done so far because the other ones have been sort of standalone improvs. But this one is going to come, you'll see, in the middle of an established song. But it's definitely worth mentioning as we're wrapping up this season and talking about all of the important improvs from tour. Would you agree? I would. This is from July 20th, 1996 in Eugene, Oregon. And the improv is titled... Improv outburst. Let's listen.
96 Tori, even though she encourages it now, 96 Tori would do anything to get us to stop clapping. She's like, I'm going to change the change the tempo a little bit to see if it throws them off. Oh, God, they're still going. Well, I guess I'm just going to flip the fuck out so that they can't clap. What did I I'm say? Gonna... Stop clapping now, please. That may have been what she was actually singing. I couldn't understand a damn word of it. Maybe um, she was workshopping Siren because it kind of sounded like that. It was just, ah, yes. Um, <laughs> no, but I love that. Those moments that were so raw where she would pull away from the mic and just go off. And it was so... Unexpected. Never, yeah, but she, like, it was almost as if, again, like I'll use that word channeling unless she'd like prepared it before and everything wasn't really improvised. But it would just, she would take these... Thought, you, there's no way that was prepared before. No, I think you're right. But it's still amazing to me that she can sort of go off, play, having nothing to do with the song, take this wild turn, sing a couple phrases, and then just like dip back into it. She's like, what? She's like, and? Yeah. My heart is like the ocean. What was I saying? It gets in the way. Right. What's the big deal, y'all? I love that. I love moments like that, too, for the exact same reason that you mentioned. Just these like raw moments that anything could happen. And can you imagine, because we didn't tour so much in 96 because we were babies, but... Can you imagine the old nerdy guys that that are like a generation before us? The Tory, you know, the like the Mike Wise and the guys on Usenet yes. and like created the groups for us. The people who wrote reviews of the Do Drop In tour initially that were like, I remember when Tory didn't need laser shows, or right. guitars, <laughs> to yeah. carry our, live our elders. Show. Yeah, yes, our elders. Can you imagine them touring during the '96 tour, doing multiple shows, and then suddenly seeing this take to the sky out of nowhere? Yeah, that would give me multiple showgasms. I'd be on the road for the rest. <laughs> of the tour after that probably hey. <laughs> let's talk about this old man and i'm not talking about myself i'm talking about the song do you mm-hmm. remember when we covered that on I do. our episode this old man <laughs> of course and i remember when we talked to those old men our dads our fathers yeah. yeah we talked to your dad and my dad not together no they both deserve their time in the spotlight yeah you know like interview magazine where like a famous person would interview somebody i want our dads to interview us for a goddamn change oh, i thought you were gonna say each other oh <laughs> like, that'd be that'd interesting that'd be a weird experiment too but why not but i want them to interview us they need to earn their keep That's as a good our fathers idea. i kind of like that they can't just get the spotlight is there like an equivalent this not as quite old man song <laughs> coming <laughs> up with, that would make sense to do um let me think two 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 northern lads mm-hmm. we'd have to move to the north that's fine i mean la's north of, of like san mexico diego. yeah, yeah. That's Conditas. <laughs> so this old man, what we want to say is that John Aursler quickly and eagerly pointed out that we missed playing his favorite version of this old man, which was from Washington, D.C., 2001. I thought we never hear from him unless we do something wrong. <laughs> In my own personal life, too. Seriously. No, John Aursler <laughs> recently just shared an incredible meme with us that I love. I died. Anyway, I agree with John because... We skipped over this era for this old man. Can you believe doing an episode on this old man and skipping over any of the eras of this old man? Well, we got a little <laughs> senioritis I know. on that episode. <laughs> we forgot something. Could happen to anybody. Um, she was in 2001 playing this old man, and it was very political, and we forgot to mention that. And so here is Washington, D.C., 2001, This Old Man.
was October 6, 2001 in Washington, D.C., but she also did it the next night, again, October 7th, 2001 in Washington, D.C. I don't get it. It's kind of like nothing to see here. What? How do you sing this old man? <laughs> I'm not working anything out. It's totes normal. <laughs> well, I think that there was a lot of political shit going on at that time. And she's in Washington, D.C. And she's singing to these politicians, these old fuckers, and saying, you old men, get out of my garden. <laughs> well, I hope when we're elderly, people have more respect for us. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will. Mm-hmm. Should we do another improv as we move out of this old man? <laughs> to another old man. Well, for this one, we got a pain somewhere. <laughs> Ephraim, I know there's a pain in my home. This is from 9-12-96, September 12th, 1996. And someone shouts out, pain in my hole. And she says, I don't know that song. And then proceeds to play the song. I love those moments where you can ask her for like one of her legit songs. And she's like, <laughs> no. And then someone shouts out, pain in my hole. You got it. Anything for you. <laughs> Let's listen. And, th- and then we'll get into like w- what we've decided is the chronology of things. And the source of the pain. Okay, we just had a technical difficulty. So we'll figure that out. Just, so what are you thinking? So you can do acoustic. We'll see his guitar is broken now. I don't know that song. I've got a pain in my hole. And it could be this boy I know. Or it could be some big man in a suit somewhere. Could be that 15% I got sitting at his desk What do you think, David? It was the whole so nice. She sang it thrice. So as far as we can tell, she played it in Cleveland, June 4th, 1996. Then the next night, or the next show in Chicago, someone asked her for it, and she told a story. Cleveland, 
Somebody yells something. I thought it, not you, I know, fair enough. We won't condemn you to this. So I thought they said, play pain in my hole. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, I have actually, but I haven't written it. Right? And I couldn't, if, I swear to God, if my life depended on it, I could not make up that song again. I'll put it out on, some bootlegger has it already out, I'm sure. But anyway, I made it up over here, and it was paid in my hole, something, something, that's all you say all day. And, uh, so anyway, what they were really saying was, one of the engineers came up to me and said, um, Tor, you know what the guy said, right? He said, yeah, there's pain in my hole. He said, no, he said, Caden's cool. <laughs> and then now, three months later, someone must have heard the bootleg and wanted to get a reaction from her. And she gave it to him. What are you going to do? That's not surprising, considering, you know, she'll say, like, I don't know, Samurai, but she'll kind of <laughs> sort of try it or whatever. So she's probably like, I kind of remember a pain in my hole, but I don't really know it. So I'll just like do whatever. Let's just give them what they want. But I love the symmetry of it coming after Donut Song. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a little Donut Song caboose. <laughs> the Donut Hole. Yeah. I got a pain in my Donut Hole. Totally. <laughs> Come in Houston. I got a problem. Um, let's talk about Toodles, Mr. Jim. We received a letter and this is a little bit long, but we're going to read it anyway. Dear Ephraim and David, thank you so much for your Drive All Night podcast. It's a remarkable thing that you're doing. When my friend Amy first told me about your podcast, I was astounded by her description. The depth of reporting and the attention you give to each song, one at a time, I had to find out for myself. This would have been around January, February last year because the first episode I listened to was Caudalite Sneeze, Team Noun. After Muhammad, my friend, I knew I would be taking the train back to Bentley Helms with you boys. During the podcast lapses, I was able to go back and listen to each episode from the first two seasons. First, the core curriculum, then the B-sides. I just want to pause there and say, like, we should be teaching a graduate level course. Aren't we? We should try to get hired at the Berklee College of Music. Okay. Think? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's submit. We'll move to Boston, except I would hate to live in Boston because I'd get confused. I get turned around on the streets there. The cows paved the paths. The cows got the asphalt. You know, like when you're stomping grapes, they stomp the asphalt down. I have never been to Boston, I don't think, but I feel like it's a place that would feel like home to me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, the men are hot. Sorry I haven't spoken up sooner. Maybe I felt like I've already missed the Bentley Helms train. Maybe I was jealous about the superfans that had already claimed songs from the first albums. But now that you have returned to Crucify, I am compelled to drop a note of gratitude and break my silence. This past year of Tory study has been emotional, hilarious, and fascinating. I have been twinning my current and older selves. That's an interesting way to say it. Sounds kind of dirty. It's like going back to our young selves, but like with this knowledge that we have now. It's really fun. Good point. Have been both more raw and exuberant than I have been in years, possibly decades. Anyhow, your podcast has helped me stay in the moment. The attention you give to every detail has made me more attentive, more curious, and more alive in the world each day. Tori has been a companion through so many milestones in life. Her songs and her artistry have been one of my deepest, most sustaining pleasures. Discovering the community you've helped extend and foster makes me feel like I have oodles of new friends. When you get to Unrepentant Geraldines, drop me a line. <laughs> you got it you got it if i can still type i'll be so old that's a lovely email thank you for taking the time to send that to us we really appreciate it we really really do that was from jesse colby in salt lake city thanks jesse that was just an excerpt david if you want to read the whole thing you have to bring over a ream of paper and i can print it out for okay you. <laughs> 
Steal some from work. Steal some from work, exactly. Should we do another improv? I'm hungry for it. I'm hungry for it. Well, what I've got to serve up for you now, David, is from Rockford, Illinois, September 20th, 1996. And this improv is called, by the fans, Little Blue Thing. did you think of her little blue thing david well that certainly raises more questions than it answers like what is the little blue thing who does it i'm a stuffed animal of some kind well according to a review on the dent fastrada wrote at this point one of her bodyguards or roadies or whatever plunked this blue stuffed animal <laughs> thing be bothered to identify the help <laughs> fastrada here one of the bodyguards or roadies or whatever plunked this blue stuffed animal thing right in front of her on the piano and i don't know if she was making a song up about it on the spot or what but she started singing about this stuffed blue thing and how it reminded her of someone who wasn't in her good book anymore. This was probably the only remotely playful moment she had during this show. Then she went into London Girls. London I, Girls I, isn't playful. It's, that's serious. Serious. Find me a London girl. You gotta have one every little I need someone time. to darn my socks and I wash my... <laughs> My little blue thing. So who do you think, first of all, is not in her good book anymore? That's a, that's a long book. That's a phone book. <laughs> she talks about this person who's not in her good book anymore, but then she says that person can do the thing that makeup should, which is like make you look prettier, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to look, again, I'd have to look at that little blue thing. But the, the improv itself sounded like the end of Agent Orange in the sandwich song and Pandora's had, Aquarium. And had, it had a, a little Toodles Mr. Jim too yeah, in there. Yeah, they all had a little blue baby. Blue, blue. So if she had just come up with little blue thing a year earlier, that would have been on Pele. Probably. It probably would have yeah. been. Where would little blue thing have fallen? Which song would it have replaced? She would have definitely replaced Agent Orange with little blue thing. Maybe. We'd go from... Not the Red Baron, Little Blue Thing. That's true. It would be her colors trilogy. Red Baron. Blue Thing. And then Agent Orange would be floating around there somewhere. (laughs) Little Blue Thing into Agent Orange. Yeah, okay, good. So this is about Hungarian wedding song. This is where we're at in this wrap-up episode. Do you want to read this thing that Dinesh 
Pevri wrote us to say, and I believe if I remember correctly, Dinesh sent us this on Twitter. Hello, longtime listener, first time writer, and I have a couple of points. The first may be a stretch, but here goes. My theory is that the Cotolite Sneeze Silly songs are linked and were about Mr. Jim, maybe as a tribute to someone who taught her where those boys can climb when they've got a spell, or in other words, when you've caught a little achoo from them. So I think they appear in chronological order. This old man is when she first knew Mr. Jim, just as an old man. Hungarian wedding song, I think when Tori talks about the pissant song that Susie played, and then Tori replayed it, I think the pissant song was Hungarian wedding song, or a simplified version of it. So, Tori is replaying it from memory on the piano for us, taking us to that moment, just as she's replaying the memory of that moment in her head. And it's pivotal in her development, so she remembers when Mr. Jim became a figure in her childhood. Toodles Mr. Jim is obviously her tribute when she finds out he's died. Graveyard, paired with this old man, Toodles, on another version of the single. Once he's gone, she says goodbye as an adult to that old man. It's a stretch, but I think it kind of makes sense. The second thing I wanted to talk about, on the Hungarian Wedding Song episode, the whole noun verb thing came up again, and it's time to put in my two cents. Finally. I personally always thought of it as a noun and never considered it as a verb. But once the prospect was raised, it made me realize that it's both. Hmm. Building is a gerund, a verb that's also a noun. Tori is known for her wordplay, one of the reasons I and so many others love her. Not me. And I think she purposely chose this word because it can be taken in multiple ways. So I propose that everyone is right. Oh. Thanks. Get your head out of the clouds, Pollyanna. <laughs> I swear we've read this on um, one of the Silly Songs before, episodes. But I definitely wanted to include it, and I wasn't sure if we had. So who has time to listen to our old episodes, David? <laughs> We're <laughs> onward and upward. Right. I have a couple things to say. As far as building being a gerund, we have several memes on the subject that you can find on our Instagram in our memes folder. You can see how we feel about that. Whether it's... Okay. I think it's a noun. You think it's a verb. Whether it is what it is, whatever it is, whether it's a noun, whether it's a verb, I think it is one thing. And I think she thinks it's one thing. Because how long did it take us all to realize that it could be two things? It took us years in like, what, 2007? So it was 10 years later where we realized like, wait, it's a noun and a what? <laughs> There's no way she was like, ooh, that word is perfect because it's both. Right. I don't buy that for a second. I don't either. Yeah. But I like Dinesh's stance on this. I don't want to fight anymore oh i do you've all exhausted me David. everyone can be right i don't even care if i'm wrong she has 15 albums and you don't want to fight anymore well We're not about the... this oh, okay. i'm ready for a new fight okay i well, want to we'll... throw plates on the ground about something else i want to know if spark is a noun or a verb oh jesus mm. i'm already thinking about how interesting it is that spark follows twinkle mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't really yes it does no it doesn't the B-sides in the middle don't count. Are you joking? As like proper album canon. No. The end of one story into no. another. One story's end seeds another to spark and begin. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's such a thing as proper album canon. There's canon and then there's not canon. You got to count the B-sides. It's all canon or it's not canon. I don't know. That's like saying there were a lot of songs in between Upside Down and Upside Down 2. So I think it's just a coincidence. <laughs> They're not actually related. <laughs> all right. Anyway, we're moving on. You want to hear another improv, David? <laughs> Yes. Well, good. This one's from Normal, Illinois on September 24th, 1996. That was a good show. Were you there? No. This is the improv Into Honey. It doesn't have an official title unless she titled it Improv. <laughs> I don't think any improvs have official titles. He, I've got a well. He's got an ocean. All She's right. got a well. I've got an ocean. What Pain is in it? my hole. <laughs> Pain in my hole. Sweet little pill. Sweet little pill. 
So strange. So very strange. So strange. She likes them strange. I, l- I like them strange. I Do get you? that. I get that sentiment, girl. I mean, we go into Honey where she's talking about a dude who wants her to keep her shoes on. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, I'm sorry, did I hear Red Muff? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. Why it's, you look so disgusted today? I, I just, that's just my face. <laughs> <laughs> Red Muff? Well, that's an odd phrase to hear peppered in a Tory song. Is this like an ode to her waxer? Oh, Dr. Bill the Waxer? Dr. Bill the Waxer. has got a lot of stuff when you got a red muff. Takes or, care of my red muff. Or when muff. you don't have a, have a red muff. That's what well, you don't saying. have one when you leave. Maybe he's a muff dyer, I think is what he is. He's got a lot of dye oh, okay. to make your muff red. Not to be to confused match. with diver, I guess. A muff dyer. <laughs> Uh, the Frog on My Toe episode, here's a little quote that we forgot. This is from the Chicago Sun-Times on September 24th, 1998, two years after the Muff song. Papa believed that there's no greater evil than hypocrisy. He taught, walk your talk or you cut yourself off from the true gifts of the great spirit. When I was a little girl, he said to me, you can't hide from the demon in your own heart. It always knows and you have to make peace with it. That's how I live my life. I would agree that's how she lives her life. It's very clear. That she faces up to her shit. She yeah. owns her demons, confronts her darkness. I agree. It's her nature. We're there with her. Mm, we are <laughs> her there demons. with her. Um, let's move on to the Alamo episode. But first, let's do another improv. It's going to be hard to follow up that muff. This is a big one, David. This is from Acoustic Cafe, 1996, September 27th, 1996. And this one's called Umla Boomlier. Roll it, Oliver. Oh 
What do you think, David? I love this appearance. She's promoting her album on a nationally syndicated show, and she's like, mm, I'm just going to do two improvs in this old man. I love it. Right. On this particular yeah. performance, she does Umla Boomlie, Abbey Road, two full, complete, like, improvs really long, and then an Anna Karenina intro to this old man. That's what the people want. That's what the people want. I love Umla Boomlie or Umla Boomlie, however Umla we would Boomlie. say it. I think it's really beautiful. Umla. And I'm a little disappointed and surprised that I haven't picked up any DNA of that song elsewhere. Anywhere, yeah. yeah. I love that you say that because whenever I'm listening to these improvs with you here in this moment tonight, I'm trying to find other pieces of other songs from the future, you know? Mm-hmm. Like when that last one a couple of improvs ago where she said Strange, I like them Strange. I was trying to find the DNA of Strange in there. <laughs> I didn't find it except for the word Strange. <laughs> but yeah, what do you think about Uma Boomle? It's so evocative of the era, like the Pele era, not only the way it sounds, but she's like literally at certain points singing about the tour and the tour bus and mm, who's there with her. Johnny, so I don't Mr. Know. P. Do you think Caton's pissed off in the corner in the back? Like, what about me? He's always surly in the back. Was it just the three of them on the tour bus? No, there had to be more people. Was it just her and Johnny on the tour bus? Or I think it was just her. Just her? <laughs> I don't think she shares her tour bus with anyone. You think she's alone on that bus with no one to talk to? I doubt it. Except Mr. P. I think she and Caton were on the bus together. You they do? Have- they had to have been. I don't know. I think she needs her alone time. You don't think she's on one bus with Caton and then the other bus is the techies? Not really. I think she gets her own and she loads everyone else like in the can sh- of sardines okay. on one other bus. You're probably right. I mean, you when you perform and you need your sleep, you know, you need to just have your moment alone. Yeah. I get it. You go to bed in like your dressing gown with your cold cream on and your hair up on curlers. You don't want anyone to see that. That peek behind the veil just ruins the... It ruins tour for everyone. It does. You just show up with full makeup, looking but, fresh yeah. as a daisy. Right. I woke up like this. Ready for the meet and greet. Yeah. While we're here, um, we're going to play also this other improv, the Anna Karenina, This Old Man improv. Ready? Ready, David? I'm ready for Anna. Thank you. 
I'm here to promote my album. I'll be playing three songs that aren't on my album that I'm making up on the spot. How are you? <laughs> that was a make it work moment, if there ever was one. <laughs> She's sort of meandering, and then she got a little na na I like it. I'm hoping one day we get an IIE French Junior. Oh, God, I would die. I would just die. <laughs> Do you think she was reading Anna Karenina at this moment? No. You don't think she's on the at bus? At that moment, she was like, God, I'm so checked out in this interview. Wait, let me no. put my book down for a second. Like on the bus. <laughs> you know, she's an avid reader. Is she? So, yeah. yeah. Do you think she would was reading Anna Karenina? It's possible. And obviously it makes sense paired with this old man. Clearly. Let's move on to our Alamo episode. Yes, you want to read this email that we received from John Delamar? Yes. Very nice man. Hi, guys. Such great work with the BFP B-sides. I don't envy you your task of interpreting these dense and deeply metaphorical songs, or better maybe, snatches of songs. I'm writing because I'm listening to the Alamo episode, and I'm right in the middle of the lyrical analysis. I didn't want to forget this thought I had by getting caught up in another and another as the spiral of the song unravels. God, it's hard to be a Tory fan, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The lives we lead. She destroys my brain as I'm lost in another spiral of tears on my pillow. Sorry. (laughs) The lines alter that alter, making a play, never really meant much to me interpretively until your discussion. Because there are no official lyrics for this song, we're all running on the assumption that T is saying alter, E-R, that alter, A-R, but what if the homophones, the homophone? Homophones, David. (laughs) such a homophone You're such a homophone but what if the homophones are switched and the line is actually alter ar that alter er she is giving the alteration of the relationship religious status this works in the realm of the album as the eponymous boys are a sacrifice to pele and in this song maybe the sanctifying of the changing relationship is the play sacrifice that's needed for her to take her chances outside of it just a thought Hope all is well. Super excited about the Choir Girl episodes in the not-too-distant, fingers-crossed future. I'd love to join you guys to chat about any of the songs on that album or the B-sides. Choir Girl was the gateway for my ears with feetness. All the best. 
John. What a lovely email, John. If you want to be on any of the Choir Girl episodes, John, now's your chance. Email us at songsoftoriamiss at gmail.com with the subject line as the song that you want to be on. That's important. Email us with the subject line as, as the song that you want to be on. Your finger crossing worked. We're almost there. I know. Yeah, we would get there eventually. It's all a matter of time. But that future wasn't too distant after all. It wasn't, actually. So what do you think about Alter, that Alter? When he said that, I thought you're sanctifying. He is saying you're sanctifying the change, right? But I thought he was going to go in a different direction. You're sanctifying your Alter Ego. You're sanctifying your many, your mood swings. Alter the altar. That's what you thought he was going to say. That's where I thought he was going. Oh. But he didn't. I like it. I like seeing this sort of relationship transition and reassessing all of the men in your life as sort of a, I don't know, sacred process. And holding this shift and change is somehow holy. Holy. I like it. That's so on brand for Tori. It really is. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what time it is, David? What David? But time, sorry. Did you fall asleep? I passed out. It's my bedtime, I guess. <laughs> it is time for another improv. You want to oh, do it? Yes. Let's do it. So this improv is from Baltimore, Maryland on September 30th, 1996. I actually really like this. And a lot of times when people label improv into Space Dog, they're mislabeling it because it's usually the Andromeda lyrics that they're calling an improv. Right. But this one, this time it's not. So this is before Space Dog and not the Andromeda lyrics. Let's gotcha. take a listen. Sense is an intro to Space Dog. Talking about UFOs. Looking out at the constellations, wondering if there's life out there after all. Mm -hmm. Her mom apparently believes in UFOs. Her dad can't quite get it in his mind. And Reverend Edison. He's practical. He is. Do you think Mark's her favorite Martian? I was wondering that myself. I kind of think so. You think so? Yeah. And then, you know, she built Martian Studios for him. Yeah. You think he goes by Martian? Like, maybe that's like a nickname. I actually know a teenager whose name is Joseph who goes by Martian. Really? Yeah. It's like, that's what I like. Mark. That's what I like. Martian. Martian. This is the I'm on Fire episode, this little segment that we're going to do now. And I want to play this improv outburst in the middle of I'm on Fire. And this is from August 16th, 1996 in Vienna. And I am shocked. David, I am shocked. (laughs) 
I'm a fire that we didn't play this on the episode. I am too, but can I just say I find this labeling to be somewhat sexist. <laughs> it's an outburst. She's what? hysterical. This woman has gone insane. <laughs> Is it that time of the month? You know, if a man went off in the middle of a song, it would not be labeled as an outburst. Outburst. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's I'm on fire from Vienna 96. I'm on Fire is one of the episodes I'm most proud of from the whole season. I really felt good about that episode. I just didn't want to include this then because I thought like it would be too good. It would be too much. You know, I didn't. It's not that I forgot about it or overlooked it. It's just that I didn't want to give too much of a good thing. I wanted to say something for the wrap up. Do you believe that? I, I believe it, but that's the difference between you and me. <laughs> when given the option of gulp and double gulp, I'm always like, I don't recognize the smaller option. And you're all about restraint. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's interesting to see what songs sort of spark that outburst, I guess, in the middle. Hysteria. Hysteria. Take to the sky and I'm on fire quite often. She gets like so worked up by those. She just yeah. can't help herself. Like, don't tell me to sit down. But all joking aside, that's a good example. Just that I don't want to use the word wailing because that sounds negative and critical. But the way she was using her voice on that tour that she had never quite done before or since, it gets me every time, regardless of like what she's actually singing, just the sound of it like mm -hmm. makes me want to start crying mm -hmm. the sound of it in those halls it's like the acoustics in those enormous halls yeah yeah i agree and how she could fill it and when she'd pull off from the mic and you could still hear her loud crazy yeah even from the back yeah yeah i wish she would do that me too. again i wish we could all be young again maybe we should do it from okay. the back i'm ready to do a tour of my own with the harpsichord yeah you're ready to do it in the back you want to get into our Over the Rainbow segment, David? I'm going to get under it. I finally got to have a chance to talk to a Judy Garland super fan to correct our big mistake from the Over the Rainbow episode. Let's play that now. Somewhere over the rainbow Skies On the line, I have Gary Horrocks. He is the editor of the Judy Garland Club Journal. He's been the editor of the Judy Garland Club Journal for 20 years. And you can find that at www.judygarlandclub.org. 
They put us to shame in terms of their fandom. Hi, Gary. How are you? It's lovely to talk to you. We're so excited to have you on. We wanted to get you on for our Somewhere Over the Rainbow episode, or Over the Rainbow, as it's originally called. And it didn't work out, but we're glad to have you here on our wrap-up episode. Tell us a little bit about how you became a Judy Garland fan. Well, I've been a Judy Garland fan uh, for many, many years. My real discovery came when I was living in London in the mid-1990s, and I was looking through an old record shop, a box of vinyl, and I came across this wonderful album called Judy Garland in London, and I was intrigued not only by the, uh, the eclectic nature of the songs that she sang and the people, musicians she worked with, but I had no idea that Judy Garland had actually been to London and recorded at Abbey Road Studios, and I highly recommend people to go out and find it, Judy Garland in London. And I just fell in love with her. I was curious about her career. I picked up every biography I could find and just fell in love with the, the, the rich history of her extraordinary career. She conquered every possible medium, television, radio, records, in an amazing career, her live concert career she performed over 1100 times in, in theaters across the world she was probably the most popular mgm star of her of the 40s and 50s so it's just an enormous legacy and i became even more intrigued too the more i read you you began to realize that there was a quite a unique woman underneath all of the veneer of hollywood she was actually very accessible it turned out that she was very very close to many of her fans she would very often invite her fans backstage uh, after to, to, to parties to recordings so not only was she a superb performer but she was also a very human person as well Gary and I had a little chat before this interview, and he has told me some incredible things about the Judy Garland fandom. And the original question I was going to ask was, tell us a brief history of Judy Garland's life. But I'd rather you tell us all about this incredibly rich Judy Garland club. Can you give us a little peek inside what it's like to be a Judy Garland fan? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, the great thing is she, her demographic. You know, she has, she has fans across generations. Uh, we still get emails from young children who's, who've seen Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz. And sadly, they say, well, you know, what does this lovely girl do now? They still think she lives on. Uh, we, you know, we have a great, great cross-section of society who love her. I, I joined the club in the mid-1990s. It's been going since 1963. And it's interesting. Judy gave uh, the club her blessing. And she was actually the honorary president of the fan club until she died in 1969. And it's really captured all of the anecdotes and stories from fans who, you know, wrote in letters over the years, who remember meeting her backstage or have pictures taken with her. And we've, uh, we've curated all of this fantastic information, um, which you can't normally get in the media, and it's not often in the biographies, but very personal stories. We've recorded hundreds of hours of interviews with people who met her. Uh, you can get some of them on our website. We've uh, we produced documentaries. And our journal, uh, Celebration, is a rich, rich uh, history of archival photographs and stories and anecdotes. That's so wonderful. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, all of our stories, all of our meet and greet stories, all of our private conversations with Tori archived in one space. We're trying to archive the songs and to archive the stories behind the songs, but the International Judy Garland Club is working to archive everything, every story, every photograph, and it's incredible. You're an inspiration and an aspiration. 
Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about Judy as a performer. Well, where, where do you begin? I mean, I think she had a consummate professional attitude to everything she did. I mean, the voice alone, she was a, an actress and she was an actress singer. So one of the most powerful things is her sincerity, the vulnerability of how she delivers her songs. You know, she could bring life to a song. She could make a ballad heart-wrenching. She could make a, a big belting song better than anyone could. I remember someone once said she inhabited a song and she could literally, you know, almost climb into it and bash it about. You know, she really knew what she was doing. And you believed every word that she was singing. Uh, she also had an, an astounding live presence Many of the uh, anecdotes from fans who went to see her in concerts across the world, whether it was Carnegie Hall in New York or the London Palladium, they all say that there was this almost religious fervor and anticipation even before she came on. I think she had that ability to, to speak to the heart and everyone who ever saw her felt like she was just singing for them. You know, it's a, it's a unique craft which she'd, you know, built up over the years from being a vaudeville star as a little girl. And, you know, that carried through as her voice was nuanced and MGM sort of trained her and mentored her and turned her into this professional who was able to do everything, in, you know, whether it was dancing, singing, acting. I want to move you into a conversation about Over the Rainbow. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that song? Well, obviously everyone knows it's Judy's, obviously Judy's, Judy's song, uh, written especially for Judy Garland for The Wizard of Oz in 1939. There's, there's this really awful story which goes around. People used to say that, oh, this, you know, the film was originally written for Shirley Temple. I can categorically tell you that the sound, all the songs and music were written especially as a vehicle uh, for, for Judy. The big irony about Over the Rainbow in 1939 was typically MGM when they were reviewing the film, very early in the previews, they, they actually took the song out of the movie because they didn't want it to run on too long. And uh, a colleague of Judy, Arthur Freed, who's the associate producer, actually said, over my dead body, you must put that song back. <laughs> so we, we very nearly didn't have Over the Rainbow. And of course, it went on to win the Oscar for Best Song uh, that year. And, and Judy Garland, quite rightly, got the uh, Juvenile Academy Award the year later as well. And it's a stunning song, which obviously punctuates her life. All the concerts she ever did, you know, she would end on Over the Rainbow. Wonderful stories of her sat on the edge of the stage singing it to her fans. And of course, many people have, have tried to sing it, some very well, some not so well. <laughs> Even her daughters, uh, were, you know, short after Judy died, were very reticent to, to sing it because it was associated so heavily with their mum. Well, performing Over the Rainbow is what we're here to talk about. Have you heard the Tori Amos version, the one that's been officially released? Of course you have as a super fan. <laughs> give us some thoughts. I'm going to ask for your stamp of approval. Whether or not you give it is completely up to you. But what are your thoughts on the song first? Okay. Well, I have to say, with it, first of all, I think it's, I think it's unique. I, ha I think she delivers it. It's one of the only versions I've heard which actually made me cry. Wow. She delivers it with a, so almost a breathless delivery. It's a very, very evocative, emotional delivery. And I love the, the piano and I love the introductory music, which is you know, quite unique and, and cleverly done. Now, I think it's great. Sometimes I've cringed and heard some versions of the song, but because it's so unique, she's made it her own and she's given her own take. And I think she's not trying to you know, recreate 
uh, the song as Garland would sing it, as some people tend to. No, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I loved it. Wow, that's high praise. Now, so you do give it your stamp of approval? Absolutely. And I think that the more people who keep that song alive, the more people will hear it. And someone will say, well, you know, who sang it first or who wrote it? And what film did it come from? I I think I I said breathless. It's, It's a very sort of wistfully lovely quality to the way she delivers it very uh wistful almost you know i think yeah i loved it high praise from the judy garland club gary horrocks um i have a question now you know tori amos has a one of her biggest hits is cornflake girl and in the very first line of the song she says never was a cornflake girl so it makes it very clear she never was a cornflake girl yet people sometimes refer to her as the cornflake girl which is really like nails on a chalkboard for our community so i'm wondering for your community is it nails on a chalkboard when someone calls the song somewhere over the rainbow <laughs> well i have to say i i am a pedant and uh, yeah, <laughs> when, when people call it somewhere over the rainbow I, I do get irritated but i'm so <laughs> i'm so close to the facts that um you know, I try not to be a killjoy, you know. If people, <laughs> if people love her and enjoy it, I don't mind. The, the, the thing with Garland, which does get me upset, is when people focus on her personal travails uh, to the detriment of her achievements. Mm-hmm. And that happens such a lot. Well, I want, yeah, I wanted to get into that conversation with you because is it maddening to you who is here collecting her stories and collecting the minutiae of her life? Does it frustrate you that people like in the movie Judy, for example, that were everybody's so focused on when things go wrong? Now, for me, there are so many highlights to her life that when someone comes along to make a movie, you'd think that they would consider celebrating the achievements. Instead the director decides he's going to make a movie about the final few months of her life in London. And when I heard about the movie two years ago, my heart sank and I emailed the film company and I sent them um, magazines, photographs, anecdotes, stories about Garland's career, stories about Garland's work in London in this period. I even told them that I was a close friend of Judy Garland's dresser, who incidentally is 93 years old and lives in South London. But of course, she doesn't exist in the movie because they weren't interested in telling the truth. The film is one chronology of fiction. So much of it isn't correct. But I always feel like a killjoy because you can go to the cinema and watch it and come away, if you don't know much about Garland, thinking, well, that's quite a clever, nice evening out. But in reality, most of it was just a pack of lies. Well, it's important to know that because in the case of ever there being a Tory film, we would feel just as passionately if they misrepresented her. So it's important to know that, yeah, it may be entertaining, but if it's based on lies, maybe we shouldn't support it. And I appreciate you telling us that. It sounds like I'm being controversial. It's just that there are so, so many lovely stories. This period in her life, Garland, she came to London in, for the last time in late 1968. Uh, she wasn't well. She was financially, physically depleted. She was malnourished. You know, she had an eating disorder. She wasn't well. She shouldn't really have been going on tour at all, to be honest with you. She should have been, you know, looked after. And the fact is that she went on and did this five-week engagement. And if you look at the reviews of the engagement, they were largely superlative. And she went on and finished the engagement. She was even invited to do an extra week. Now, if you watch the movie, that that is not the story that they're telling you. Uh, they, They show her falling drunk to the floor, which never happened. They show her insulting her audience, which she would never do. She loved her fans. 
you know, she one thing she revered was the 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 fact that people cared. She she once said, you know, these are the people I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be Judy Garland if it wasn't for these people. But the movie doesn't show you that. I'm willing to allow artistic license in a, in a film. I agree with that. You know, you can't get everything perfect, but it goes way off the mark, really. And a few days ago, I was with Lorna Smith, her dresser, um, and um, Judy personally invited Lorna Smith as a fan to help her get ready backstage at the Talk of the Town. And Lorna would mix her drinks, arrange flowers for her, help her get in and out of her costumes. And I thought, what an amazing story. Surely the filmmakers would want to tell that. Well, they didn't. So just to get this story out there, we recently published um, a, a journalist called Tanya Gold has published a brilliant article in The Spectator magazine, which you get in the USA. You can actually Google it, Judy Garland, The Spectator. It's an article called The Handmaid's Tale, and it tells the story of Lorna Smith the real dresser backstage at the talk of the town. Well, I'm glad you're clearing this up for us, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you go out and Google Judy Garland, The Spectator, and read that article. Also, while you're at it, check out the International Judy Club. You absolutely must go to www.judygarlandclub.org. Run, don't walk to that (laughs) website, where Gary Harks is the editor of Celebration, the Judy Garland Club Journal. Gary, it's been so wonderful to have you on. My pleasure. Tori Amos is a huge Judy Garland fan. That She's mentioned her several times in the music. And what you said about Judy being able to sing to a, a hundreds of people and you feel like she's singing just to you. Yeah. Not only is that something that Tori Amos has said about Judy Garland herself, she's said that, but that's how we feel about Tori. There's such a link between them as performers and I can see like the power that Judy had over her audience is very similar to that kind of hold that Tori has on her audience and just that intimacy, that honesty that you can't get away from. So we really appreciate you being on our show. No, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm going to go off and listen to more, some more Tori now. So. Oh, let me curate a playlist for you. <laughs> oh, yes, do that. I'd love to. That'd be lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Gary, so much for being on our show. Okay, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Of course, that was only a small part of a longer interview that we did with Gary, one of my favorite interviews of all time. I thought it was so informative and just the devotion that the Judy Garland fans have to preserving her legacy. It's really, really inspiring. Check out the full interview at our Patreon, patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. All subscribers at every level get access to that interview because it is fantastic. And Gary wrote me back to say, he actually sent me an email a few minutes after that interview to say that he had forgotten to mention a big problem of that movie. He said, just realized that I forgot to mention the most profound problem with the movie is that they robbed Judy of her voice. The voice is monumental. Renee is not Judy, and this ultimately undermines Garland and robs her of her humanity. He wanted me to make sure I mentioned that, and there it is. So watch Judy the movie at your own risk. What was it that you particularly like about Judy Garland? She sang to millions and millions of people, and I always felt like she was singing just for me. Mm. It wasn't about ego. It was about singing to some little person in this house, and then you wanted to get out of your house so bad, and she made you think you could. Mm. Lovely. Let's move on to the next segment, David, and that's Blue Skies. Would you like to read this thing from Mix Mag Magazine from November 1997? I sure would. This is fascinating, and I've never heard this bit of trivia before. So let's dive into this interview with BT. Oddly enough, Tranzao almost found himself in that very situation. We're diving into the middle here. 
When Kinetic released Ima slash Ima, the CD included a bonus track, Blue Skies, a collaboration with Tori Amos, a labor of love between the two artists who became friendly after Transel remixed several of Amos's songs from Boys for Pele. She insisted on returning the favor by singing on one of his songs, singing her vocal parts impromptu over an unreleased version of Ima Ima track, Divinity. Transel took the 15 minutes of random singing and turned it into a breathtaking four and a half minute pop song, complete with bass, guitars, and drums. Now, this next part is the interesting part, y'all. Yeah. As the track started to gain steam at radio, Transau's label received an order from Amos's people to stop promoting Blue Skies at once. While many artists would seem upset by this, Transau looked at this situation as a gift horse. If you put something out that's massive and you have no prior reputation, you have such huge expectations put on your shoulders that there's often no room to grow within those expectations. You have to do what's expected of you over and over again. If I had to do another 2,000 records that sounded like Blue Skies, I'd have killed myself. So, rather than see himself perennially perched in the top 10, he's happier taking the long road in his homeland. With Blue Skies, I was put in a position where there's a great deal of awareness about what I'm trying to do, and I've won many diehard people that are really into what I'm doing, and those are the kinds of people I want listening. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Why do you think that happened? I don't know. And on what authority? Katori's people, it doesn't even say like label or anything. Maybe that's what he means. But Tori's people stop promoting this song that she <laughs> willfully contributed to at once. You don't know the, the ter- if there was a contract, if there were terms of the contract, if she knew it was going to be released as a single. If- and also money talks, baby, money talks. And she presumably is making zero dollars off of this. I guess. But as his work, I'm pretty sure he's allowed to promote it. <laughs> it's very strange to me. I'd love to know the answer. We, again, extend an interview to BT. He wrote us back in an email saying he would love to talk about Blue Skies, but then dropped off the face of the earth. I'm worried. Maybe that either meant we were misreading his tone as one of enthusiasm and I want to talk about this amazing experience. Maybe he either meant, oh my God, I want to give you the dirt give on me how this dirt. whole thing fell apart. Nobody says dirt anymore, David. I've hung out with kids. They say tea now. Give me the tea. I said dirt once. Didn't that sound like, cool when I said it? Yeah. Give me the tea? No. We were going to get the tea from BT? Okay, yeah. I'm getting into it. I'm getting okay, into yeah, it. Yeah. All right. BT anyway, was going to give us the tea about tea. So maybe it was that or he forgot about that part and and the more he thought about it, he was like, I'm not going to go on that show. Talk oh, about yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I forgot about but BT, we and desist. love for you to come on our show. I'm assuming that he's listening to this right now. The wrap-up episode for Boys for Pele. Of course he is. <laughs> the only thing that would make any sense to me is... Like, the Professional Widow remix was obviously... It didn't sound anything like Boys for Pele, but it was successfully driving people back to that record because it was her song. Maybe they were still trying to wring the last bit of blood out of Pele that they could and promote it, and they thought it was a distraction of some kind. Because right. it was directing Timing people wise, to him. Timing-wise, you mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Kind of like, in a way, that YKTR being re-released by Atlantic kind of pulled focus away from Native Invader being released at that time. Did it? I think it pulled focus Mm. from Native Invader, but I don't think it hurt Native Invader. I think it just pulled focus. Now, do you want to get into another improv, David? I'm ready. This one comes to us from Binghamton, New York on October 6th, 
wild sure was if i have but one wish in this life it would be for at that time in 96 for tori ms to have done that in binghamton and then the next day cut a full studio version in the same vein as that improv it wouldn't have been the same i'll always love your ass your ass your ass i didn't realize how much tori talked about ass until recently she does talk about ass a lot who doesn't any red-blooded american woman loves some ass do you want to talk about Siren, David? Again? Again. <laughs> we just got through talking about Siren. All right. But people are already responding to us. Mm. This is a tweet from Riotpoof77, and he says to us, I appreciate the analysis, but I think you're overthinking. Reach high doesn't mean she's holy, just means she's got her cellular handy. I think it's a literal line, not reaching up high with arms up in holy praise, but just to get some damn reception. Did you ever consider that, David? No. <laughs> no. I also don't remember either of us suggesting that she was raising her hands in holy praise. No, he's clarifying. It's not her throwing her arms up in holy praise. It's just trying to find some cell reception. Not that we suggested she was saying that or that people were saying she was reaching high in holy praise, but that that's what just means she's got a cellular handy is clarifying that she's not reaching up in holy praise. Well, I am aghast, agog and gobsmacked at being accused of overthinking things on a three-hour show devoted to a single song. Yeah, seriously, we did a line-by-line line for Till the Chicken, and this is what you're criticizing us about? Overthinking Siren? Yeah, this is what you take exception to? We analyzed Samurai. Did we do a line-by-line by, line by Samurai? Yes, we sure did. Yes, we did. And we and we didn't hear from you, Riot Poof 77 Not then. We also dove into the history of Samurai, right. which is obviously super relevant, super L's to the song. <laughs> Colonel Mustard's wife responded to that tweet and <laughs> Lady said... Lady Dijon. <laughs> yes. No? Okay. Huh. I always heard that line and interpreted it as basically reaching for someone out of one's league. Not everyone could afford a cellular in the 90s like today, so she must have been pretty uppity to be able to do so. Well, she's got a goat and a phone. She told you already that's the two things she owns. Yeah. I think that's kind of on point because we also talked about the 90s when cell phones were really still a status symbol. Yeah, for sure. What do you think of that interpretation? Reaching out of one's league. Reach high doesn't mean she's holy, just means she's got a cellular hand. I think that makes sense in terms of Finn and that whole dynamic with Estella in the story, in the movie, in the book. Kind of reaching for something that's out of his league or that's just kind of toying with him or whatever. Yeah. So Desert Sun responded to that tweet to say, I always saw it as she's not a savior, the coquette. She's just using the tools she has to call for help. She's not the doctor that's going to save you. She just has the phone to call the ambulance. What do you think? She's your coquette. She's got you <laughs> dialing your phone. I would also like to read something about Siren that was tweeted to us by MXS But Spoopy. 
Mom? I was at the Vancouver show and requested it at the meet and greet. She's talking about the Vancouver 07 long intro performance of Siren, that beautiful intro. I was at the Vancouver show and requested it at the meet and greet. First time seeing her. That performance was incredible. I went with my best friend who I'm now married to, and it was a fabulous experience. And I wrote back, you fell in love during the Siren intro. It was a love spell. So if ever you need to woo the man or woman or non-binary person of your dreams, go back to our Siren episode, hit up the Vancouver 07 intro, and just play away. Should we do another improv? I'm gonna. This next improv is from Roanoke, Virginia on October 11th, 1996, and it's dubbed the Me on Your Back improv. Here we go. to be both pretty and creepy a way i would like to be described at some point <laughs> you want to read this from mix magazine november 1996 this is about touring this is a long article and shay cut a little bit out of it for us to read and it's, it's just really interesting to hear from mark and marcel it's like a novel to me amos says of the album it's the descent of this woman to find fragments of herself and the record is very much in order of how the songs wanted to be presented. They made it quite clear to me in the recording where they wanted to go. Boys for Paley was recorded, per the liner notes and our show, at a church in Delgany, County Wicklow, and at a wonderfully damp Georgian house in County Cork, Ireland. For sale. Mark Hawley and Marcel Van Limbeek engineered the disc, which Amos produced. The same team also handled the sound on Amos's most recent tour, in which she traveled the world with just her keyboards and a guitarist. It was her idea to record in a church, Holly recalls. Ireland was just a nice place to do it. We went around to 10 or 15 churches, but we didn't have a lot of time to make up our minds, and it was this one that sounded the best. But it did surprise them in one way. When we went there, it was really quiet, but realistically, there was a really busy road right down from the church. So, I can hear the cars on the album, on a couple of tracks. They're very, very quiet, but I can hear them. We've talked about that for sure. Yeah. Considering the irreverent spirit of Amos's music, a church was an unlikely recording location, especially when one listens to her unwholesome lyrics. Yet the church provided her with the atmosphere she desired, not to mention some unusual recording situations. We went to this church in Delgany and set up all the gear there, recalls Holly. We tried to set it up so she had the freedom to record as she wanted to. She would just go in for two or three hours at a time and just play, basically. The church in Delgany was a beautiful acoustic space, and I think the piano and harpsichord sounds are great for that. The thing that was compromised a little bit was the vocal, on the grounds that she performed in a little box. 
a little box is understating things a little. Holly and Van Limbeek designed a wooden booth that housed the front ends of both the piano and harpsichord, with enough space between the instruments for Amos to sit and perform and switch between them. This small structure helped the engineers avoid any crossover between the vocal, the two instruments, and the natural reverb of the church. Her attitude toward that is she didn't mind what she had to put up with as long as we record her live, Holly says. When I try to stick my head inside the belly of the piano, or try to stick my head inside the harpsichord, I wanted you to hear it how I could hear it. The piano hopefully goes inside your stomach. When you put it on a decent hi-fi, you should be able to crank it up and it should just crawl into your capillaries. How many times did the crew walk in and find Tori with her head jammed in the piano or the harpsichord? <laughs> Get out of there! Get out of there! What That's you doing? That's not how we record! As intimate as her piano sound is, her vocal performance, which is particularly noteworthy for its wide range of emotion and dynamics. She's so particular about her vocal sound, Holly says, and being able to hear the realness and the detail of it. And very rarely is there much reverb or anything on the vocal. Holly and Van Limbeek swapped mics on her vocal on different songs. Some songs were recorded with a Neumann M49 that she owned, and other songs were recorded with her U87s, explains Van Limbeek. Whenever she sang her own backing vocals, we made her sing into anything from an SM58 to an AKG C414. An SM58 is a really good microphone, by the way. Mm, still? Mm -hmm. It's a very popular vocal mic. Huh. The harpsichord also is rich in texture and detail, on such tracks as Professional Widow, on which Amos combines the instrument's tone and an unusual melody to make the instrument sound downright sinister. Holly and Van Limbeek later mixed the album on a Nii VR60 at Jacob's Studios in England. Everything you hear on the album, apart from the fact that it's gone through a really nice console, is very much how it was recorded, remarks Holly. There was not a lot being done to it. Which I appreciate, and I think we can definitely hear on the album, that you're in the church with her, mm -hmm. right? That's definitely a through line throughout the whole album and the b-sides all of it is that you're there in this very open space you feel almost present sitting in a pew listening to her perform the engineers say that during the recording there were no actual plans to record a specific song at a set time for songs with other elements such as choir rhythm programming guitar or sousaphone amos would perform the piano and vocal parts first and the other parts were recorded afterward if Amos did not get a good take, she'd play another song before returning to it, and the process resulted in many of the B-sides for her singles. Alan Friedman, who did all the loops on the album, tried with us a couple of times to get her to play to a loop, Holly explains, but I don't think anything got done like that in the end. She would just decide to play the songs. On Cotolite Sneeze, the harpsichord, piano, and vocal were all done as one take. So there were no overdubs. God, I want the raw audio of that I too. I know, me too. <laughs> In fact, no demos were done for any of the songs on Pele. Oh boy, we've argued about this before too. Basically two or three songs on the album and many of the B-sides were written as you hear them there, says Holly. Marianne and Not the Red Baron, the first time she ever played them and the first time we ever heard them was the performance that you hear. The whole recording process was really special for that reason. During their recording sessions in Ireland, Amos and company recorded some 40-plus songs, many of the extra tracks becoming B-sides on her never-ending stream of singles, including the recent Tallulah, which has two versions overseas. In fact, during this interview, Amos, Holly, and Van Limbeek were in Boston recording still more B-sides. The singer is prolific, to say the least. According to Holly, the overall sound philosophy for Amos's recent tour was that it can't be wimpy, it should be powerful. It should be a nice hi-fi sound, not deafeningly loud. I don't mind if it gets a bit edgy when she screams or if the piano becomes quite loud in some sections, but overall it should be a good listening level. 
Despite the fact that the setup on stage seems relatively simple, Amos at the piano and guitarist Steve Caton by her side, the show presents a series of challenges which keep both Holly and Van Limbeek on their toes. Holly says that getting a clear lead vocal is paramount on this tour, and that's something that is quite tricky. The main problem with all the live stuff is the fact that we have a piano with a lit up. It's not so much a problem getting the piano sound, but the vocals both from the monitors and back from the house go straight into the piano mics, and that's our main problem. In bad venues, it can take a second and a half for the vocal to hit the back wall and get back to the piano. The duo used the same cardioid mic pairs, U87s and KM140s, they used on both the piano and harpsichord when recording Pele. There are only a few microphones there, and they're all pretty much on the high gain, says Van Limbeek, so the whole sound is incredibly open. This mainly because the piano lid, which is looking into the audience, works as one big microphone. As soon as Mark changes anything at the front of house, I can immediately tell, and so can Tori. And that works the other way too. If I change something, he can tell immediately. Then of course, there's the harpsichord, which sits behind Amos and the piano. The harpsichord, even though the lid is facing the other way, upstage, explains Van Limbeek, is very, very quiet and fragile. The wood is so thin, so the whole thing becomes microphonic. You can stand next to it and be picked up. Any problems with the vocals leaking into the piano mics, explains Holly, you can quadruple for the harpsichord because it's such a quiet instrument, and a piano is really quite loud. We started out with monitors, but we got more of the vocal from the monitors into the harpsichord mics than we got of any harpsichord, so it just wasn't working, basically. To help Amos, Van Limbeek has given her a set of headphones, although they monitor sound in only one ear. To solve their acoustical problem with the instrument, the engineering duo placed a plank of wood with sound tiles on the inside of it against the lid of the harpsichord to deflect unwanted sound. Luckily, the audience cannot see inside the harpsichord because of the lid. Thank God. <laughs> I don't want to see a plank with tiles on it. The way Steve works with his equipment really suits Tori's style of playing, says Holly. The speaker for the amplifier, for the electric guitar, is offstage somewhere, and he just listens back through his monitors. Cornflake Girl is one of my biggest problems with the acoustic guitar. In the piano solo, I can almost turn his acoustic off because there's so much bleed from the acoustic guitar into the piano mics. That is a bit of a problem, and I find it very difficult to get that right. It can be very distracting, and the sound of the guitar isn't that nice when it's coming down the piano mics. Caton has two monitors, one for Amos and one for him. He's listening to the piano pretty compressed, says Van Limbeek. He's got a Galaxy hotspot next to him, and all that's in there is either piano or harpsichord, whichever Tori is playing, not her vocal. If he gets into a problem, especially timing-wise, it's hard for him to look back at me and say, I need more piano. So he's got this little Galaxy hotspot, which is nothing but a trashy little speaker, but he can turn up the piano, harmonium, or harpsichord from there in case he does need it. The hotspot is placed in a mic stand, whereas the speaker with his main mix sits on the floor, and that contains everything. Van Limbeek's positioning offstage is also very important. I'm on stage left, he says, so when Tori's playing the piano, she can look me in the face, and I can usually tell from the way she looks what the score is, whether she's happy or not. She has a few signs she can give me. Tap the head. <laughs> I feel like that came later. Arm raised. Yeah. Oh, that's 98. I think that all came unplugged, yeah. yeah. But Well, I actually found that very interesting. Me too. Especially the live stuff, because Absolute. as a layman... I wouldn't necessarily know that being her sound guys required constant motion and adjustment absolutely on the fly do you think that's kind of unique to tori an artist like tori because her set list changes every night as opposed to like a big production where once the sound level is kind of set 
you're kind of good to go through most uh, of the show? Or I think that's that part the... of it for sure. Uh, having mixed front of house before as well, it's really mostly about the dynamics of the mics and what she's doing in any given mm. moment. It's not necessarily the song choice so much when you're mixing in front of house. Although, like we've discussed before, getting that that change between the piano to the harpsichord on Codlight Sneeze is very difficult. So not only that, but also like if she's screaming all of a sudden, and then if Caton's also playing at the same time, it's like, oh, I got to bring this down. And so it's, a whole thing. When you mentioned that, I was thinking, given this in-depth discussion of mixing her live sound, they didn't mention that switch at all and how challenging that is for them, we would think. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That was just left out. But yeah. I would love to hear more about that. That was from, of course, Mix Magazine. That was on touring. We got ourselves into a little touring tangent. Um, let's hear another improv. Yes? Yes. This is 102896 Sweet Home Alabama. That's the improv. That's Someone titled the improv that. And this is from College Station Texas. Give me a skinhead song. What's that one that you're... No, 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 the other one. What'd you think of that improv? I have a question for you. A technical question. That kind of wild, unhinged singing is, you know, reminding me of the way Mark and Marcel described the recording process when she'd go in the box and just sing. And I kind of imagine that's how we got things like Sucker, right? Um, And I think on Sucker in particular, she was actually playing the harpsichord and piano at the same time, kind of the way she does now with the keyboard and the piano. Mm -hmm. But she never did that live, which would have been so cool. And do you think that's strictly because of how challenging all the mic setup and managing her sound was that she just couldn't play both and they'd be able to manage the sound or maybe that had something to do with it are we sure that she played sucker on both at the same time i'm pretty sure i don't know if we can verify that but i think we there's some quote somewhere or something where they talk about her playing both at the same time or maybe we even have a picture of it i don't know but i'm pretty sure using that specific example she was playing them both at the same time it would have been cool maybe it has to do with the mix that's mm-hmm. interesting we'll never know put we'll it on never. the list put it on the list exactly Here's another improv. This is from October 29th in Austin, Texas. This is a rare improv on the harmonium, David, and it's before Sister Janet, and it's at the end of the show. We've dubbed it with every step.
You found something interesting, right? I think so, or something that I wanted to just throw in there, throw into this conversation. I think it was maybe mentioned twice, tops, during the press cycle for Paley, but for sure it was in the March issue of Spin magazine, where there's a discussion about the 14 songs on Paley representing the body parts of the Egyptian god Osiris. And that seems like kind of a major conceptual talking point that Tori would have managed to bring up over and over again if that was actually true. So... I don't know what to think about that. But it says the 14 major songs on Boys for Pele, which at 70 minutes runs much longer than either of her two previous albums, symbolize the 14 body parts of the Egyptian god Osiris. In the myth, they were collected by the goddess Isis. If Amos is Isis, whose body parts does she need to collect and reassemble? She recently broke up with Eric Ross, the co-producer of Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink, whom she was with for over seven years. So what do you think about that? It's not necessarily said in Tori's words, but I imagine that's a conversation she had with the journalist, so I don't know. For those of you who don't really know about the death, the two deaths of Osiris, I found this. One night when he hunted with his pack to the moonlight, Seth cut him into 14 pieces, which he dispersed in the swamps, Isis and Osiris. Isis then undertook a new quest and recovering the pieces of the body of Osiris one by one, buries them in the different cities of Egypt. I've never heard her mention that, and I do, as you were reading that, I recalled reading that as well. It's not in her own words, but you have to imagine that comes from a dialogue with Tori. Mm-hmm. Maybe she thought, okay, they do represent a severing, like she's been cut into 14 pieces, and by putting them on this album, it's kind of like sewing it back together, or as Isis does, burying them in different cities. Mm-hmm. But it's just another interesting layer to this already complex album that we have spent two years deciphering and still more still more rears its head yeah for sure i feel like they're playing a little fast and loose with the number of the major songs because wouldn't that mean are there 14 major songs wouldn't that mean well they're talking about beauty queen counts as one as opposed to its own intro that's the no, only they're way counting that, that as 14 i think they're the four that they're not counting well beauty queen horses is one so they're not counting beauty queen exactly yeah i yeah. think they're okay. omitting mr zebra way down agent orange and twinkle, twinkle. Yeah. yeah although twinkle is a major song i would it, but it is indented. it's just that it's indented exactly right. it's indented will we ever understand why no i think tori's just a, you know she's <laughs> because she wants intros and outros or you know her she's a fast typer and she's not one for attention to details sometimes words are capitalized hither and yon right all, the whole words capitalized i love the image of her typing up the, the track list on her own computer like she had no her... one to blame but herself when hey jupiter came back 17 times with the <laughs> lyrics wrong that's true these max it's bitching what they can do <laughs> bell check let's play another improv while we're at it all yes. right while we're at it might as well might as well this is where we found ourselves this is an improv entitled Foodgasm. It's very popular in the underground Tory scene. This is from 110296 in Tulsa. I'd love to take you home with me, but I'm homeless.
I'll have what she's having. Mayonnaise and cheese and onion sandwiches and Derby China ware. More. More <laughs> cheese and onion sandwiches. Little um, kids braces. <laughs> here's another improv from November 3rd in Lawrence, Kansas. This precedes Icicle. when she gets all horned up over Jesus. My only son into icicle. Ooh. I don't know if horned up would be how I'd phrase it. But we're at our last improv of the tour, David. Say it ain't so. I know. We purposely haven't been playing the Hurt improvs because we played them throughout the season. If you're really interested in the Hurt improvs, you can go back to our Blood Roses episodes. You can go back to our Caudalite Sneeze episodes. Yeah, we've played the Hurts throughout the season. So that's why we're not really playing those, but we do want to play this one. This is from the last show of tour. This is from Boulder, Colorado, November 11th, 1996. And it's just beautiful. So roll it, Ollie. Can't stop now, man. You and crystal that show david I what do you was. remember of this moment i can almost picture it just her beating on the harpsichord and like what a moment that was mm-hmm. what was she wearing <laughs> i said almost picture it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was only 23 years ago a sweater 
Ah. And, you know, the black pants that she was yeah. usually wearing. Can you believe that we are at the end of our season? Actually, I can. Uh, I'm breathing a sigh of relief as if I don't have to edit this. Well, you don't have to do it right this second. Thanks, David. Thanks for the permission to sleep. I'm here to help. What have been your three favorite moments of the season so far since our last wrap-up? So only the B-side. Since our last wrap-up. I loved both of us being interviewed from Beyond the Grave. Oh, that was fun. The dream come true. Yes. I actually thought interviewing our dads was a sweet moment Mm -hmm. nothing to do with us but just i don't know i loved talking to them and i thought they were both good sports for doing it and kind of enjoyed themselves so i'm glad that we have that does the retreat count as a moment yeah is that too broad no we had a huge long retreat this season i know and like tori herself we hate so much food guys you wouldn't believe it (laughs) no mayonnaise we have to do that again at some point during choir a retreat we have to go somewhere it'll be a smaller retreat because there's less besides that's true but But our retreats will get shorter and shorter i'll be happy nonetheless i really enjoyed interviewing our dads um because how it's rare that we get to do anything like it's rare that you get to interview your parents or have anything like that about us i don't know it's just very sweet i'd also probably pick josh johnson doing a dramatic reading of sister named desire as a film (laughs) noir yes (laughs) i just wanted to like underscore it with some like snapping absolutely you could almost see him lighting up a cigarette (laughs) she was the kind of dame right she was a sister she was a sister named named desire Desire. dressed as uh raining blood from strange little girls you can see it Mm -hmm. you can see it those two moments of course i loved working on the graveyard episode with peter and shaggy that was fun but i would have to say that my favorite moment from this whole season above anything else would be talking to nancy shanks oh yeah that was a really great and special moment and a a rare glimpse into an artist who affected tori so much yeah she was so generous with us too i thought yeah it was a great moment but all in all a great season and i'm happy that we did it and i'm happy to be done and i'm happy to be moving on gentlemen we're done we've reached the end of the pele season <laughs> cock teases no more cock teases no more though we still have a choir girl primer so we're not jumping into spark just yet uh, that's that's the tip plus we're taking a month off don't forget that if you are a subscriber to our patreon at patreon.com songs of Torimus, we will not be taking a month off because we'll be publishing to the drive all night plus feed all month so if you're a subscriber you don't have to worry but for the rest of you guys out there we will be taking a month off before we come back to the canon proper if you like what we do head over to patreon.com slash songs with tori amos and consider throwing us a few bucks if you throw us 10 bucks you can hear all our drive all night plus episodes if you want to listen to our drive all night plus episodes we're redoing all of little earthquakes and we got a little behind so that's why we're taking a month off from the regular feed to catch up with our patreons put out china leather mother tear in your hand and then we'll be back on track then of course being a gun in little earthquakes yeah god good stuff good we're stuff. gonna be there we're so proud of those episodes those episodes had to be done the right way and we're finally doing it so head over to patreon.com slash songs where you can become a supporter today to help us continue to bring high quality and entertainment to you did I ever tell you the story of how I came up with it? No, tell me again. It just came I to me in a moment. I was saying entertainment. I have entertainment written down on my notes. I just 
a one-take wonder. It's the first take syndrome that Ralph Salmons talks so much about on our Siren episode. <laughs> yep. I don't know. If I had to choose between Intori Taman and Bentley Helms, I, it's no a Sophie's choice. To I know, but if I had to, you can have to. both. You can are, you, have... are you saying you're making me choose? Though? No, I'm, you can have Intori Taman and Bentley Helms. Okay. <laughs> God, what do you think they have in Bentley Helms? Nothing but Intori Taman. Oh my God, that's High such a good point. Intori Taman for you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a blast. I'm so excited to be moving on, and thank you for listening to our show. Please follow us on all our social, at Songs of Tori Amos, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can go to our website, songsoftoriamis.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can call our hotline, 323-296-9955, and leave us a voicemail. As we go into the next season, if you want to be on our show, if you want to be a super fan, send us an email, songsoftoriamis at gmail.com, and plead your case. Most of the episodes are all booked up, so... Send us an email and leave us a voicemail if you just want to tell us your story quickly. What else? I don't know. I think that's plenty. I what more could plenty. there possibly be? Two years of talking. God, <laughs> we need a break. God, I hope we didn't forget anything. We're also giving away a Tori Amos color chart poster to the first five people to email us their favorite moment from the entire Boys for Pele B-side season. That's anything since this old man. What's your favorite moment of the whole season? Email us and have that in the subject line with your address. And if you're one of the first five people to email us, we'll send you a Tori Amos color chart poster specially designed for our show by Michael Morrison. We'd like to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters who continue to support our work that we do here on Drive All Night. We wouldn't, shouldn't, and couldn't do it without you. We'd also like to say thank you to all the guests that we had on for the Boys for Pele B-Side season, and that includes Bob Schoenier, Dwayne Anderson, Alexander Leger-Small, Priya Sen, Laura Crum, Jared Good, Peter Zimmerman, Shaggy Jason, George Porter Jr., Nancy Shanks, Emmy Kane, Saker Hines, Dorothy Dotson, Josh Johnson, Julie Chappell, Jessica Levy, Shay Steinmack, Lindsay Nettleton, Paul Roy Taylor, Stefan Svensson, Lauren Eshwi, Matthew Presidente, Ken Rosen, Coy Berry, Ralph Salmons, Searsha Rubito, and of course, Mr. Gary Horrocks. Anything else you want to say, David, before we sign off from the Pele era? Oh, man. We got to say buys for Pele. Buys for Pele. No. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon with From the Choir Girl Hotel. But for now, buys for Pele. Bye.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com. Yet, by the end of the project, I didn't want to roast them as much as I did in the beginning.